Hey everybody, uh, this is Norm from Tested, and this week's episode of This Is Only a Test is sponsored by Telecommunication Systems Cloud Messaging Center. Imagine being able to message anywhere in the world using your own system, application, or website. Telecommunication Systems Cloud Messaging Center allows you to do just that, as well as receive delivery receipts, create contacts and groups, schedule deliveries of messages, create and view reports, and more. View, uh, go to cloudmessaging.guru, that's .guru, to sign up for the CMC REST API. In just a few easy lines of code, let Telecommunication Systems Cloud Messaging Center incorporate worldwide messaging functions into your business. And thank them for sponsoring this week's episode of This Is Only a Test. And now, on with the show. Hey, let's start a show. For November 19th, 2015, this is this is only a test, the official podcast of tested.com. Hey everybody, it's Norm here, hosting This Is Only A Test, and I'm joined this week by Jeremy Williams. Greetings. And Patrick Norton. Hey everybody. Thank you guys for coming in the early this week, early on a Thursday, so everyone out there can have the podcast this Thursday. Now Jeremy, I know you're running the control board back there, mm. pressing that important, all-important fade-in button, mm -hmm. and I think we are currently fading in. Uh, would you call that a <laughs> successful launch? We'll see, right? I I mean, I can as far as you. I can tell. Can you tell? I can tell. I can I, tell so far. I'm feeling good. I heard the soundboard operating perfectly before the show. Yep, soundboard was working before the show. We got audio out. Like, like we said, every episode, every recording, every beginning of recording is like a rocket launch for us right now. We are 1968 NASA figuring out Apollo 10 <laughs> and, and, and how to get things right. And I can tell you already, we didn't have a perfect launch today. What I, I miss, I I didn't get to press one button until after it started, and all it means is that everyone out there gets the podcast maybe an hour after I originally wanted them oh. to get it. Okay, that's Should okay. we restart. Will that save us like forty five minutes? No. All right. It was too good of a start. Doing it live. Doing it live. <laughs> yeah. I think the video looks good. The video looks good. Audio is going to be fine. Um, and how are you guys doing this week, Patrick? I'm good. You know, exciting morning, traffic, mayhem, nothing compared to uh, the nightmare that went down in Paris last oh week. Oh, my goodness. Um, yeah, I think we have to acknowledge that there was some crazy stuff happening in the world. Um, some There were terror attacks, everyone knows, in Paris last Friday. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, we're like in the thick of it right now. People are still figuring out what's happening. Just this morning, I think I was listening to the radio, mm -hmm. and there was a raid uh, yesterday that they announced. Uh, where they they got the who they think was the mastermind behind it. France confirms uh, front page of the Washington Post. France confirms alleged leader of attacks killed in raid, mm -hmm. uh, or at least one of the primary planners. Uh, a second planner, they're not sure if if he was in the building or somewhere else at the time. Uh, France is pissed. Yeah, I mean the, well the whole world's be. kind of pissed, um, and I mean, you know, from our perspective, it seems far away, but it also seems so close. 
it's it, it, because of the way we're all interconnected and the images coming out. And you know, just like last week, we talked about how uh, phenomena that happens in one part of the world mm-hmm. can immediately be resonates and, and felt in other parts because of social media. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was an immediate worldwide impact. Yes, and it also it's been interesting to watch uh, some of the. The the news cycle is so fast that it's like terrible tragedy, and then twenty four hours later, you know, and everybody's like, "Oh, Facebook turned on the you know are they safe thing that they put together for the natural disasters, and this is the right. first time they've done it, you know." And then there's like a college professor on NPR who's like, "Wow, it's an indicator that they put this on for France, but had not put it on for earlier disasters." In and goes a list of uh, I should say right. not disasters, terrorist acts uh, in various countries, and it's been interesting watching. You know, Donald Trump proved that. Uh, he can be the ultimate troll uh, on Friday night. I'm not even going to get into that right now. Oh my god! Um, you know, <laughs> and it's been, it's 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 at this point, it's like I'm half like marvelled at, at how extraordinary social media is and the outpouring yeah. and like being able to raise funds and motivate people. Uh, and then the other half is like the amount of stupid that travels at the speed of light, and then the politicians get in like. You know what I mean? Like, oh, th- this happened because of Snowden. And it's like, hey, they, they caught one of the planners because they were using an unencrypted smartphone and dumped it in a garbage can outside of the, outside of the, 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 the theater they shot up. Let's be clear, though. The stupid has always been there. Well, Stupid yeah. has always been there, regardless of now or 10 years ago or five years ago, every disaster. <laughs> the problem with that is because of the 24-hour news cycle and because right. social media and media being the democratization of media, everyone seems to be on the equal footing. Yeah. And, and all the voices, stupid or proper or not, feel like they have equal footing and the media then doesn't do its job and doesn't parse through it and treats everyone right. as equal. And so it's just about how loud people can get. Uh, there were some interesting things on the on the tech side, and I think you were starting to allude to that. Uh, encryption, encryption is a huge deal. It's becoming a huge topic. Mm-hmm. It's becoming this big platform for people, at least in the states, in the U.S. government, and a lot of law enforcement agencies, calling for tech companies, and they've been doing this for a while. But now right. using this event to call tech companies and point a finger at them and say, "Hey, you guys have the encryption is what caused this," or encryption. Uh, gave the these terrorists the abilities to do this, right. which is turning out maybe not to be the case, but they're making it a huge platform. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a, some inter- some interviews with uh, 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 Pavel Durov, who's uh, the founder and, and the CEO at, at Telegram Messenger, which is an encrypted communications tool. Um, you know, uh, it's... You know, in, in the open, the lead quote is like, Pavel Durov knew his terrorists were using his app to communicate, and he decided it was something he could live with. And this has always been, it doesn't matter whether you're talking about encryption, privacy, First Amendment, Second Amendment, religious freedoms, I mean, all the classic Bill of Rights stuff. This has always been like, you know, are these rights absolute? Do you pursue this to the ultimate end, or do you compromise uh, in the name of safety? Um, and that's where it gets interesting, because, you know, uh, according to you know one of our our senators, it's okay, it's good. You know, Diane Feinstein. We should monitor every single American cell phone communications to make sure we're all safer. Well, you think that even the more you know the more progressive senators would would be in favor of privacy, but they're really point, they're talking about government backdoors. And right. when we're talking about encryption, we're we're not talking about your messages messages not necessarily being secure. It's about 
the tech companies, the government and agencies wanting companies like Apple who run their own messaging systems. Because before, the government could had maybe great deals with AT&T and Verizon and telecoms to go into the databases, you know, with with the um, and uh, with subpoenas um, and pulling out records. But when a company like Apple or Facebook runs their right. own messaging system that takes the place of that, you have however hundred however hundreds of million people using uh, WeChat or whatever what, what, uh, when Facebook owns and iMessage taking place of SMS for many many people and that's these are systems that use end to end mm -hmm. encryption where the message is encrypted on your phone right it's sent over whatever network but it's encrypted and then it's decrypted on the the end user's phone and there's no way to well it's it's it, the argument starting to sound like it was over PGP which was like 20 years ago 25 years ago where you know encryption was still classified as a munition you know and that same conversation came up well you don't really need encryption no see if you're if, if you're not doing anything wrong you don't need encryption um <laughs> yeah and and thankfully a lot of the tech companies have been spending a lot of time and effort mm -hmm. um just advocating for privacy. Uh, I think the EFF was on the radio this morning, and some some great like good great great commentary. I think TechCrunch had a really good piece on it. Uh, the local radio station uh, KQED they do a morning interview show uh, called Forum, and they mm -hmm. interviewed the EFF this morning about this very topic. Uh, so definitely check that out. I mean, from a user perspective, it's very difficult to to feel the effects. Right. of legislation until they're right at your door. Well, and it's all incredibly messy because right now we, we need better encryption. We need better security online. We need to, you know, I mean, we we trailed the world in, in chip and pin implementation in the United States and, and paid a fairly heavy financial cost. You know, we, we continually, I mean, a, a friend of mine just finally got his notice from the OPM. And they're like, yeah. They took everything right down to your fingerprints and we'll give you three years of online monitoring and it's like he's like every every single bit of his personal information which was incredibly uh, dense because of the security clearance he had to go through you know is now in the possession of foreign nationals and is also probably now going to start showing up on the internet and he's basically been told like well you know we'll give you a band-aid for three years and then for the rest of your life your financial future and your personal security is your own problem and it's like that's nuts patrick what are your thoughts on a uh, service like tsa pre um you know i know uh, like, regardless of how much it costs because it really yeah. is like a money-making scam that <laughs> The government will, and, and for people who don't know, TSA Pre is a system in America where uh, because you have to go through TSA security right. checks, and after 9-11, uh, the whole building of the TSA security system at airports right. has been incredibly inconvenient, and so to well, ease that... it's really good theater. It's, we yeah. spent a lot yes. of money and made things complicated, and we kind of maybe sort of made some flights safer. It's maybe the most ef uh, effective and expensive piece of performance art ever done. Absolutely. And institutionalized by any government ever. <laughs> um, and all, all it's done for people, travelers, is right. create this expectation of incredible delays uh, in getting on board your plane. So there's a new system, uh, we talk, we've talked about this before, mm -hmm. uh, that I think came up about two years ago called TSA Pre, and they've been implementing it in airports. It's a lot like the, that private company, Clear, where you used to pay for a service and... Um, and you could bypass the security check or have be pre-approved. The government has a system now, and 
you pay, I believe it's like $80 for two years. No, I think it's longer than that. Five years? Maybe five years. Five years, 80 bucks. You go into an office, uh, make an appointment, they scan your fingerprint, um, fill out a form. I'm not sure if they even take your photo there. Uh, (laughs) But once you get your pre-approval number and you buy a plane ticket with that number, you can then pass the TSA line and go into the much faster TSA pre, more convenient line. Yeah, like, like no need to remove shoes, laptops, three one one liquids, belts, right. or light jackets. Uh, now, I like the service because it's convenient. Sure, you travel. Constantly. I travel a lot. It has it's a huge convenience to me, but you're also you're paying for. You're paying to cut the line. You're paying to cut the line. You're paying. You're paying to avoid the theater, which is really it, not super effective i don't know man it's only 85 dollars, and compare that to the cost of your airline tickets right. over the co- over the length of five years yeah. it's not that much money but my point is regardless of the cost what do you think about them having this kind of personal information i, th- I mean it's it, they already I mean, one they already have an astounding amount of personal information when you book a flight unless you're faking your information in which case you you're you know either more privacy conscious than I am or you're, you have mm-hmm. issues, right? Um, it is a convenience for business travelers that are tired of, of looking at, you know, because it's like I always laugh because I don't travel nearly as much as I used to, but it's still always this wonderful chance to observe humanity at yes. its worst where it's like, you know, yeah, you got to take your shoes off. Oh, you got to take your laptop out. Oh, you got to, you know, you have to do all this stuff. And for a while, for like a couple of years, it was it was different at almost every airport, which was immensely frustrating. But at this point, it's pretty standard. Like it's pretty standard. It's also amazing every time I see someone who just doesn't like. By now, you must know the process, right. and there are some people who just don't know the process. What do you mean I can't take my two liter Gatorade bottle on the plane? I, Why you I have not, haven't flown in the past ten years? You know, well, or <laughs> or. I'm amazed that they haven't done ways to social engineer the line to at least make it more have the time pass by a little quicker. There was a wonderful article by a, a, a retired police chief or assistant police chief who was essentially a middle-aged woman and realized that she was effectively being profiled for secondary inspections um, because she looked like the kind of woman who would meekly go through secondary inspections and not complain and make the life of the TSA agents. And she started collecting information and she started researching it. She realized that a lot of the things that fundamentally changed and improved law enforcement in the last 30 years, such as actually cataloging contacts and keeping information and statistics and stuff, were not actually collected by the TSA. So there's an entire learning aspect of what's going on that doesn't exist there. Hmm. There's, you know, they're underpaid, they're under trained they're dealing with people pretty much at their worst which is trying to you know get onto an airline whether because they're late for a business appointment or because they're trying to get to Tahiti or whatever that is Um, the systems complicated and messy and yeah if you got 85 bucks you can bypass the entire thing which is probably the bargain of a lifetime unless you're trying to travel with children you do have to trade your fingerprints though I don't know have you signed up for it because I I just went uh, uh, I don't know three weeks ago to I got my appointment and uh, they make you put on both hands, like yep. t- your full fingerprints. Yep. Yeah. Well, don't worry. In the system. It's the government. They're secure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but they didn't have them before because I don't have a criminal record. Well, so or, or you haven't been a teacher or a member of the armed forces right, or exactly. a police officer. That's right. there's, there's a lot of legitimate reasons that they collect your fingerprints that do not mean you're a criminal. No, this is true. Um, but the, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it, it's kind of, you know, it's, you know, I mean, it's like, you know, in, in, enshrined in a little vanilla folder in black and white mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. are your fingerprints. And those fingerprints could be sent to the, the CNC machines to generate fake thumbs for when they need to unlock your phone. Well, that's where, <laughs> that's where it gets really... 
I mean, that's where it gets really curious because when you start reading about biometric security, there's this really interesting mixture of incredibly enthusiastic corporations trying to sell biometric machinery, security researchers that are like, well, you could do worse, and security researchers that are like, well, this is already profoundly flawed, don't bother. It's the, the biometric security, the security part is a misnomer. It's right. more about biometric passwords, passwords which are passing which can be split into two categories one right. actual encryption and security and one is just a, a mere like, like your front door lock right. a deterrent and there's it's more about biometric security in terms of the deterrence right. that's what apple uh, that's where uh the your, a touch idea actually sure. is you're not encrypting and locking your phone what you're doing is it's their front door bolt you right. know if the criminal really wanted to get in there there are ways to get in there. Well, most criminals just kick the back door exactly. during daylight hours right. and they grab the easily fensible stuff. But if you I mean, turn on someone's phone and you see that you need the Touch ID, then it's a deterrent. Yeah. Well, it's, it's also, I mean, like TSA Pre is going to do great until someone who's not on any no-fly list, not on anybody's radar, and got recruited over, you know, Facebook or, or a website or a forum or, or whatever profoundly irritating thing that ISIS is doing. And when I say profoundly irritating, I'm, I'm not even beginning to begin to express my disgust and rage at terrorism so don't email and be angry because i'm not angry enough trust me uh you know i went to school two blocks from from the trade towers uh a friend of mine had 27 of his of his classmates from high school in the building like i'm there um but the you know tsa pre is going to be fine until somebody who's has no reason for suspicion takes advantage of that to smuggle something we don't want on a plane Right. And and then there's going to be this uproar like, how could we have let people, you know, like right after 9-11, people are allowed on planes with pocket knives. I can't I can't I can't like, look, I can give everybody in this room a pocket knife and tell all of you to kill me. And I guarantee you, not a one of you is going to do it because you don't have the motivation, you don't have the desire, you don't have the training. Mm -hmm. Um but you don't have the training. I well, you know, <laughs> sounds like Dwight Schrute, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, but I mean, you think about it like, you know, people people you know the, the the you know the average number of shots fired in an NYPD altercation is what like 4000 per officer um you know they had they had an incident where dozens of shots were fired these are trained professionals who are in the police force you know and are required to qualify and when things get hairy life doesn't necessarily work out the way it's supposed to and that's one of the fundamental things we're battling right here is the people who believe that well we're going to pass laws and make everybody safe we're going to make everybody, we're going to watch everything you do. And you know what? While we're in there, did, did you just download that from that website? Let me just send that over to our friends over at the other side of the office because this is Homeland Security. And, and I'm not sure you were supposed to download that. You know what I mean? <laughs> like once we get a good patient culture of total observation, um, we'll make everybody safe. And guess what? Nobody's ever managed to legislate total safety because people suck and they do terrible things. Yes. Now that I've taken the podcast completely down to the floor. Hey, let's, let's talk about the serious <laughs> stuff then. Let's talk about the biggest, the biggest piece of technology news this week. Oxford English Dictionary's Word of the Year. Oh, yeah. Dun, the dun, dun, Word dun. of the Year, which I can't even say out loud not? because it's not a word. It is now. It is an emoji. Oh, yeah. Oxford Dix Dictionaries, which to be, to be clear, because I know people have blown this far out of proportion already, it is... It's their blog. Right. It doesn't ref necessarily reflect the opinions or positions of the Oxford University Press, but it's still the same organization. What, it's not added to the dictionary? Well, I think it's actually been in the dictionary for a long time. It's just, it's oh, uses is, they're just celebrating the word. Yes. Right. They're okay. celebrating the word of 2015 is 
the crying emoji. <laughs> yeah. Is, is it that one? This year, Oxford University Press have partnered with leading mobile technology business SwiftKeys to explore frequency and usage statistics for some of the most popular emoji across the world. And crying laughing was chosen because it was the most used emoji globally in 2015. Wait, wait, wait. Wow. Is it crying laughing or is it face with tears of joy? Yeah. Face with tears Yours of joy. Yours is probably the correct description. <laughs> but it's, it's a pictograph. And I'm sure... I didn't know that's what this one was called. I don't even know how to type out... Is this a pictograph where you could, uh, like a like emoticon, where you can type out the the ASCII and then it converts to that? What are you talking about? You know, it, it, he's going old school on you. Emoji is <laughs> just a, a derivative of emoticon. Yeah, yeah. And emoticons are ASCII characters. ASCII characters. Yeah. So is there an ASCII equivalent to this? Oh, I see. Yeah, that would be the um, colon, colon followed by a, an apostrophe. Colon apostrophe. Yeah, that uh, one, and, and that's a single, single tier. But this is double tier. I know. That's that's hard. I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm oh, so look. confused. Emojibase.com. Um, cut and paste. So while, <laughs> while you're in reverse, you're going to translate. You're going to emoji translate. It's like <laughs> babblefish for, for emoji. I'm sorry. I'm like, oh, there's the Unicode version, Unicode hex, HTML hex, HTML decimal entry, the hex entry test. And the short code. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So, he, importantly, here, I mean, yes, emoji, hugely prevalent in 2015. Everyone's using it, whatever. I think there's calling to attention, cultural shifts. Hmm. Don't take it too seriously. It used to be locked on uh, iPhones, you know. It used to be only available in the, uh, maybe the Japanese uh, You'd have to use an international, set? you have to down download yeah. a second international, enable a bilingual keyboard exactly. where you press the global icon <laughs> right. to enable it. And then there would be language packs that you would download. But now, of course, it's everywhere. It's built in. But <laughs> here are the other Oxford English Dictionary's blogs, uh, choices, the, the runners-up for 2015 Word of the Year. You have ad blocker, a noun. Not ad hyphen blocker, just ad space blocker. Interesting. Mm -hmm. um, Brexit. What? I've never heard of that. A term for the potential or hypothetical departure of the United Kingdom from the European Union. So maybe that's an, an, more of an international phrase. Seems like a Great Britainy kind of thing. Yeah. Don't, don't, I'm going to threaten with that Brexit. <laughs> Sounds like breakfast. <laughs> Dark web, which relevant to us. That's, yeah, I, mean, sure. I don't know if it's... Definitely, there was a lot of stories about dark web, but I don't feel like 2015 was especially notable of a media coverage or cultural usage or awareness of the dark web on fleek i could i could have seen that happening on fleek something i did, i learned about on this very podcast i think gary and will explained the phrase on fleek to me popularized in a 2014 video post on the social media service vine by kayla newman oh this is new i've never heard of this word before lumber sexual that actually i heard about that the first time a few years ago Lumber sexual. Remember when you see all those guys with beards and meticulously like maintained vintage uh, Pendleton? Well, imagine Will, but okay. wearing like four thousand dollars worth of Pendleton wool stuff he got off of Etsy. That's lumber sexual. Hmm. Um, Northwest America. Well, it, it's it, well, mostly though. If you, if you wander the streets of San Francisco now, there's thousands of of you know keyboard jockeys uh, who who have never actually touched a tool other than a keyboard, uh, who are dressing like they were basically working in in Eastern Oregon. Ah, so plaid, it, plaid flannel. Yeah. And so it's beard. it's it's yeah. not about people who actually are from those parts of the country, no. but it's all about people in the cities yeah. who dressed. 
that way who wear the ex- over expensive plaid. My loose understanding is Portland is the collecting point for weirdness in Oregon, which means okay. a lot of people who grew up in the in the in the lumberjacky regions or the or the 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 what do you call it the the uh, uh, ranch areas in eastern Oregon. They all descend on Portland, and they all have their sort of clothes that they brought with them. And then those clothes, because they're actually in many ways uh, indestructible and practical, became absorbed by the general population, which then influenced Brooklyn, which then influenced the rest of the nation uh, with the basically butch I work outdoors. I mean, you know, best made company. You've ever seen that? Yeah, yeah. You know, we're in Brooklyn. We make unbelievably cool axes with, with painted <laughs> Everything's handles. handcrafted. That you let can, me show you my Vimeo video. I mean, they literally like they have an rat axe focus, harness. Like I've never met anyone who ever carried an axe on a harness, but Best Made Company sells them. So apparently, there's kids in Brooklyn wandering around carrying their axes. Bespoke, all American, handmade, handcrafted, new American manufacturing. I love me a good tool, but sometimes this stuff makes me giggle. <laughs> yeah. uh, refugee, refugee. I think that this, gets listed after lumber sexual. I don't think the order really mattered here. Right. I think it's Third actually an alphabetical, alphabetical order. order. No. Listed That's here. why. Refugee, absolutely, as a, <laughs> a, a cultural, uh, something in the news. But pr- I probably omitted because as, as an idea, I don't think it's anything new. I mean, there are a lot of things, memes right. that happened in 2015. Uh, sharing economy, it's, I think maybe one year too late. It's, it's not anything new. It's just people actually started paying attention to it for the first time in like 40 years. I disagree. I think it's not even. I think that the paying attention is just another way of saying that. So again, social media right. has a, a raised the awareness of everything. Of and there's heightened awareness of every meme. At least for several minutes. Yeah. <laughs> exactly for several minutes. Yeah. So uh, sharing economy. Uh, I think one year too late for that. I was. Have you seen the the the, the, the lobby for the Airbnb yeah. building? Wow, I want to work there. <laughs> <laughs> it's all that money for that building and those uh, those ads. There's muni ads about <laughs> about library tax tax fund. Um, they this is a the word they as singular pronoun used to refer to a person of unspecified sex. So this is more about the the PC. Uh, this is interesting because when I was in college, my English professor said you must use he or she, but he he thought in the future they would be embraced as a singular pronoun. And you think 2015 is a one? Well, according to Oxford, it is. I think there needs to be a new word other than they. They is too weird. They is for I've, multiple. I've having having grown up in in parts of the culture and parts of the English majory field where you were exploring all of those alternatives. They is actually a lot more practical. Really, uh, but it carries a lot of emotional baggage and complications that I won't even yeah. begin to get. Even even I, the king of the rat hole, will not go near on the podcast. <laughs> but they they functions a lot better than a lot of the alternatives. Um, is there an alternative? What's, that's, a, what's uh, an example? Don't, don't. Oh, sorry. Oh. sorry. Walk away. <laughs> Walk away, man. All right. So really, that, that was not really the big tech nukes of this week. So hold on. <laughs> Let's go let one level back up. Uh, kind of unexpectedly, RDO, yeah, the dude. music streaming service, announced that it would be filing for bankruptcy or di- uh, at least dissolving its service. And it sold much of its assets to Pandora. How about that? How now, about that? Full disclosure, you have some roots at Pandora, don't you? I used to work at Pandora um, out of college. That was one of my first jobs out of college was uh, in, in Pandora when it first started up. That was a while ago. They were Long hot then. Ago. I mean, that was, that, that was the service. Pre-IPO. Yeah. Um, and Pandora, I mean, if you follow, and, and Patrick, I'd love to hear, like, get more context on mm-hmm. music streaming on the internet. Um, if we, Let's work backwards, because I think that's, that's probably an easy way to work to, to go through it. Um, 
me apologize for audios. Okay. Um, right now, there's the dominant form of music streaming is subscription-based services. Mm-hmm. You have things like Beats Music also being faded out because it's Apple well. Music now. So Apple Music, Spotify, I think doing pretty well. And um, and who are the big alternatives? Uh, there's uh, Tidal, um, which has launched the, the high-end streaming service. Um, and then is that it? And then I guess Amazon. You can consider Amazon mm-hmm. Prime because oh, yeah. it's Apple built Music. in. Audio Apple was, Music. Audio right? was the other big one. So if you move back from like the top three, uh, top two or three right now, it's kind of like Spotify and Apple. Last FM, I and guess, would be the other one. I think, and then you move move back from that. You have bef- uh, back three years ago, let's say it was Spotify and Audio. Right. Audio had a huge, huge marketing campaign. Audio and Spotify kind of both rose at the same time as the. What was new for them was they wanted to charge your fifteen dollars a month for streaming, and before Audio and Spotify, if we go backward one level again, was actually Last FM, Pandora, and sites like Groove Shark, where it was all based on radio-based streaming, you'd, mm-hmm. you'd listen to ads, and you could not pick the music you wanted to listen to. Yeah. And the way the licensing worked for those services and the way they made money and the way the, one of the reasons it was so challenging for sites like Pandora and, and Groove Shark, which I don't think exists anymore much, um, was that they paid their licensing fees, if they ever did, uh, through sound exchange, through um, intermediate. It was part of the DMCA, which had the provisions that enabled for digital radio stations to stream music and then pay, uh, you have to, if you were going to stream music to listeners, you have to then catalog exactly what um, what every listener was listening to. Right. And then they would tally up how much that would be per song. Then that would be paid to an intermediate service, a middleman that the government set up, SoundExchange. And SoundExchange, which re- artists registered with, would then mail out checks to individual artists. That's an incredibly tough business to be in because the rates that the DMCA provided and SoundExchange bread were very high. It was, it was like a zero margin business. The $15, and people were, and it was all advertising based, right? So it's all the, your, your classic CPM, how many per listens, and you know, whether it was McDonald's or whoever would buy mm-hmm. an ad, you, you pay an ad. And the user experience, well, it was more akin to terrestrial radio, where you just flip on a station, maybe create your own station. You couldn't choose the music. You right. couldn't download anything. No local syncing, no mobile playing for a long time. If you wanted to hear an artist, you could see the station with an artist. Yes, and you got maybe one track from who you wanted to hear something from. <laughs> and that, that was <laughs> and the then that's it. Right. Th- that was the innovation of Pandora because what they did was they they built a what they called the Music Genome Project, which is really just a a taxonomy of 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 music. They looked at the breadth of popular music, mm-hmm. uh, everything I think but classical to start because that was very difficult to. And then they identified um, dozens of attributes and they had people with music degrees sit down and listen to each song mm-hmm. and rate each song based on uh, based on the attributes. So they would listen to a new song or yeah. an old song and they would be th- through the indexing of of these songs find ties and relationships and links. So when you created a radio station, if you wanted to say, I want to listen to, let's say, uh, U2, right? I like this song from U2, this particular song or this band, they would aggregate all the data about that song or that band and then create dynamically a station. And that way, it would programmatically make uh, music more catered to you. Very smart. Last FM did a very similar thing, except instead of using a more scientific taxonomy approach, it was all just user-based um, listening. 
if someone liked this song and they looked at the data, it was all data aggregation. If um, you know, more, a lot of people would listen to this song, then listen to this song next, then they generated um, in the background a whole a, a playlist. And the reason these playlists needed to be generated was because the, the licensing that they were using didn't allow for users to create their own playlists. You couldn't do that because mm-hmm. otherwise you just pick your song. It would be free play. It wouldn't be radio. Spotify and audio were business models where they didn't work through SoundCloud. They worked with direct relationships with music, uh, with, uh, with the licensor holders. Uh, with, and they, and they, with every different um, label, they would have a different relationship, pay a different rate, which was probably lower in aggregate than uh, what Pandora was playing. Mm-hmm. And then they also started with the model where they wanted people to pay first and then introduce a radio model later. So the expectation from the user was Spotify was never a free service. Right. It was you, you pay $5 a month to listen on, on, on uh, your desktop. You pay more if you want to listen on mobile. And, and then they've, they've built this huge, huge user base. And RDO tried to do the same thing. If you listen, if you look at like, are you guys both subs- uh, Spotify subscribers? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. You, I, I'm, I've been a Spotify. Uh, Jeremy, were you an RDO subscriber? Yeah. yeah. If you look at your billing, and how long? Because I think I've, I've been a subscriber to Spotify since the very beginning. I've spent you know several hundred dollars, mm-hmm. and if you break that down to ten dollars an album, I don't know if I've bought that many albums. But I don't feel bad that I've spent that money because I've listened to a lot of things I wouldn't have otherwise listened to right. once. And it's kind of built like Netflix, built into my mind as a sunk cost every month or every year. Mm-hmm. Pandora, it's a little tougher business because they they also had a subscri- uh, subscription based business, but I think it's really tough to move from a free model to a paid model. Mm-hmm. And then in the paid model, people really only pick one or the other. So you pick Spotify, you pick RDO, or now you pick Apple Music. Or right? Tidal. Or Tidal, if you, if you believe in the higher quality, the uh, higher bitrate music. Um, Amazon, I think, gets away with it because they bundle like their video scre- streaming service with Prime delivery. It's kind of a Trojan horse service that you're like, oh, okay, I'll continue paying for that one. I don't feel like I'm, I'm, get, I'm getting ripped off because I'm, I'm really paying for delivery and then right. the music is tied to that and then if you go back before pandora and before um before last fm it was shoutcast it was user hosted radio streaming is that right is that right patrick on, on yeah i mean or ice or some of the other stuff i mean the you know uh, all of a sudden we're going back to like winamp and right shoutcast it really kicks the llama's ass oh god i was gonna say that but i was restraining myself the uh <laughs> uh-oh. Um, yeah, Patrick, I'll let you take care of that for a second. Their children's in the office. Uh, I don't think that it's surprising that audio went away. I think that in, in, in terms of music, if you look at video streaming, where there's a Netflix, there's Hulu, there's Amazon, there's HBO, which you can, with HBO, uh, now you can subscribe right. to that separately. Uh, those companies are all surviving because they're not, it's not one or the other services. They're trying to build a market where you have to subscribe to all of them if you well, want that, the breadth of content. I mean, we're, we're at the point where things are getting really, about to get really, really messy in the video market, right? Because first there was Netflix, and Netflix had a couple of really interesting agreements that gave them access to huge catalogs 
um, that thanks weren't available. Stars. Yeah, thanks stars, and then later on epics. And now, you know, both of those agreements have lapsed, and Netflix has moved on to what it considers a much smarter model, which is having premium content that people will pay for to have Netflix. And they still do a lot of other stuff, but until the Disney deal launches next year, there's kind of this dearth. There's this, well, they're in this weird place where there's some good movies and there's a lot of crap, and it's like, huh, well, at least there's tons of documentaries. Um, Hulu's in a position where a lot of, of its, you know, sort of partners are starting to look around and going like, oh, wow, you know, I, I I really, I you you know why don't we have our own, you know CBS site? How do we develop CBS? How do we collect all of the money instead of some of the money? Yep. Right, and part of that's going to be the launch of the new Star Trek series, and they're like, well, we'll do a teaser on broadcast or in cable, and then we'll make people, you know, subscribe to the website to get all of the content. Um, and that that whole it seems like the entire video industry is about to diaspora as the the broadcast networks realize that what they couldn't effectively do five or ten years ago they can more effectively do now if they just pull their content from Hulu or somewhere else and we can also get into the arguments about Amazon um, you know refusing to sell the Chromecast and the uh, and the Apple TV like and that, putting their apps in yeah. the other devices yeah well you know as far as we know Apple still hasn't received a, an Amazon app. Uh, oh, for yeah. the Apple TV, which is a shame. It would be nice to have it there. But the uh, and the that, hardware issue is a separate thing. The hardware issue is a separate thing. Even the, the licensing. Right. I mean, I, I don't believe, and, and Netflix and Hulu are definitely moving away from that model of this is the one bucket you right. need. It's not about being that one bucket. Well, they can't made. afford to be the one bucket. They, they because can't. All the people supplying the stuff to go to the buckets. They're creating all their own day. buckets. Yeah, they're creating their own buckets. But to, to bring this back to the radio stuff, the whole scene, that whole scene's getting messier and messier because, you know, title like Taylor Swift. You know, my song was played like X number of times, and I only made this much money. It's like a right. classic, you know, sort of like social media theme. Don't don't let don't listen to Pandora. And it's like, well, you know, the Wesker, the founder of Pandora, who's making a lot of money over the years, his argument is like, hey, if radio stations paid the per artist rate or the per listen rate that we pay, you know, you would make an artist would make thirteen hundred dollars every time the radio was played, yep. their song was played on the radio, which, you know, and it's it's like the the rates are so crazy at this point. And, and a lot of middle people and a lot of middle people. And also there's a lot of people that still refuse to acknowledge that, hey. You signed a deal with a record company, yeah. and they get most of the money, and that's the way it's been for a long time. That's not news in the recording industry. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are people at every level, from the creation of the song to the promotion to the publishing to the right. distribution, all the, all the platforms that you can call that. Everyone's taking their cut, and as, even yeah. if you compress the platforms from artist to distribution, it's never going to unless uh, Taylor Swift has her own. Distrib distribution service, Taylor Swift right. radio service, and is making enough, making enough content for that, it's not going to work out like that. And I guess you can't say that's impossible either because you know who the one person who has that kind of control? <laughs> J.K. Rowling in yeah. terms of media. It's going to be, but that's also, I mean, you know, this has also been a, this has also been something that's been argued about for decades, like in the recording industry, where it's like so-and-so got their rights. Well, so-and-so is one of the greatest artists of his generation or any other generation. So he's so far off the end of the bell curve and generates so many hits, he can negotiate that contract. The Beatles. Vast majority, yeah. You know, the, you know, the, uh, 
the vast majority of the vast majority of recording audience uh, recording artists are somewhere in the middle and a lot of them you know are either got trapped into a bad agreement by signing a letter of intent from a scumbaggy ar rep in a club at two in the morning or just didn't have good lawyers or saw an opportunity to get rich and it's it's that whole you know this isn't getting any less messy the lawyers aren't having any less power and the middlemen aren't letting go of anything what i think is really also interesting is as we're talking about streaming services for audio versus streaming services for for video right. uh, on the user side what you what you're looking for from these services are also completely different when you're looking at music you're looking for a service that will have the content you want not only the new content because right. there's constantly new content as of both video and audio but also you go back and listen to the old content on the video side that is not necessarily the case if you've mm -hmm. seen a movie if you've seen a TV show it's okay if Netflix then loses that for some right. time or but all you care more about is the newer stuff there is no what is the there's no Beatles catalog in video you're not going to go to a video subscription service and say I need this service because it has Ken Burns baseball <laughs> I, I, I do go to Netflix because it has Ken Burns baseball, but it's not like you know, you're looking at the canonical, yep. it must have this library. Right. I wonder what a video service would cost if it had the, you know, the Apple Music equivalent of the library of movies. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that's what everyone hoped for with Apple. I think with the Apple TV, one of the quote-unquote disappointments, and there are different levels of disappointment or, or and promise uh, potential of, of uh, Apple TV, failed potential, people are hoping for Apple to have made deals with uh, content providers and right. what they've done well with Apple TV I think is the cross indexing of the video content in the apps in Netflix and in Hulu and in iTunes store of course right. uh, you know you one, with with one series search, in their interface right with yeah. one series search you can search across this but what I think and, and I'm sure that the API is there so that it, when CBS has their Star Trek show and it's in an app on Apple TV, you could also search it in. Well, unless CBS decides to try to make everybody to go to cbscom.app.watchstartrek.com. And, and that is, that's one of the problems. Netflix wants you to stay in their app right. because they know some of the content you have there you could otherwise Apple would rather have you rent or buy from iTunes and Netflix yeah. wants you to browse in their menus. Uh, they want to make their content surfaceable and searchable and accessible, but unless Apple has the Comcast equivalent relationship with all these content providers and can have the pay Apple whatever amount a month, mm -hmm. you know, a la carte I don't think works as well as people think the, the promise of a la carte. Right. Because if you say, and I know people love, oh, okay, we want the a la carte model. I only watch AMC and I only watch <laughs> HBO. Let me just buy those two. You know, you say that, but then you also like, Hulu stuff and, and Amazon's exclusive and you want to watch this and you want to watch South Park and you want to watch uh, the new uh, uh, the Ash and E versus yeah. Earth Evil Dead. It all adds up. You're saying you end up paying about the same. Or more. I think we're moving toward the model where the a la carte model yeah. because everyone's making content. Right. Everyone is making Star Trek. CBS is Star Trek. HBO is Game of Thrones and a ton of other shows. There's a psychological yeah. element though of of you, getting only what you want. You think you're picking because if you choice. if you have a hundred channels you never watch, you feel like you're paying for something you don't need. Yeah. Right. Well, that's and but that's also what's so complicated about the cable model is most of those three hundred channels you never watch actually subsidize you know the the half dozen you do. I mean, when you look at when you look at cable, a typical person you know watches four to six channels. They might skim twenty channels and they generally ignore the rest of everything else on their cable box. But when you're when you're you know when you're a, a big cable operator, 
you know, ESPN wants like 24 bucks a month per yep. subscriber for ESPN. So you have a half dozen channels that are paying for carriage and those help to subsidize. I mean, it, it's, it's a big, messy model. Now, I do completely agree. Some people, I mean, it's, it's a long tail model. Right. I don't think there is, there should be a one, one model fits all. There should be, the a la carte works best if there are packages from small to big. You know, if, if there was a unified service, and, and Comcast is never going to make this happen, but if there is the option, for, if you just want ESPN, you get Sling. Or if you, you, and a lot of people just want Netflix, and it's great, pay for Netflix. But I think for people who are currently paying for Comcast and enjoy those, the four or five channels, right. if you break it down separately, you're still going to be paying the same, if not amount for more fragmented experience. I think it really depends on what you're watching. Because like, we were looking at, I think the last time we had satellite or cable, we were looking at like 160 bucks a month for the bills. And now, I mean, you know, if, if you, you know, we're, we have internet, so I'm not going to count that 65 right. or 70 bucks a month. But, you know, I think we're paying probably 30 bucks a month for the, for the per monthly payments for, for stuff we watch. And yeah. then we're buying a la carte stuff off of iTunes because we started a thousand years ago. And we just have a ton of stuff locked up there. And it's also, I mean, Comcast doesn't help itself with its shitty business practices. No, Comcast. I mean, well, it'll be interesting. Comcast, you'll know Comcast is desperate when they start offering a la carte services or they, mm -hmm. they start because, I mean, it's, it's their whole... You know, it was great on, on Tech Thing this week. We, we had talked about the, the data caps and the, you know, the, the unlimited data plan. And somebody's like, you know what? That unlimited data plan, the extra 35 bucks a month, now actually makes it less expensive for me to buy, you know, gigabit Ethernet directly from the city of Chattanooga. <laughs> so, you know, um, unfortunately, the vast majority of us aren't going to have those options. And, and Comcast is going to keep beating us up in the process. Yeah, it sucks that they also control the pipes. Yes. If they didn't control the pipes, they would have much less power. Yes. Yeah. Is this a good move by Pandora? Are they are they going to offer an upsell now to the uh, paid service? Yes. I, I think absolutely. I, I, I go back to the argument that it's so tough that they have this huge user base, and they want to convert the user base, base at least partially from free advertising-based streaming to paid-based mm -hmm. streaming because that's mm -hmm. where the money's at. But... And they need they need money because their operating costs at Pandora are incredibly huge. high. They serve. I mean, it's a immeasurable portion of internet traffic mm -hmm. um, is through their pipes and through their servers. Uh, it's not like you know. I mean, maybe some of it's over AWS now um, and, and third party data and cloud servers. But before it was like in their Oakland offices, they were serving to everyone listening to Pandora, right. ripping the CDs themselves off of some <laughs> Dell machines, just hooked up to the Ethernet. I mean, they have big big server yeah. rooms, um, but. I think regardless of whether they have the technology or not, the conversion of uh, an audience who expects to and is accustomed to listening and, and enjoying a streaming service that's free and ad-based to one that's paid is the it it is the modern media challenge, and right. it doesn't it's not just doesn't just apply to audio and music streaming. It applies to text, it applies to video, and it applies to basically every form of content, um, YouTube included. Wow, because there's guys. just so much money there, yeah. So much potential revenue. Off of the streaming music and video topic, let's talk about Apple and design. Did you guys read this article in Fast Company written by Don Norman and uh, Bruce, uh, Bruce uh, Tognazzini? Um, nope, tell me about it. Fantastic piece. <laughs> uh, these two guys um, were both original Apple employees, I mean, Apple employee, like number 66 or something, and founded the uh, Human Interface Group, 
at Apple. They have since left and run UX, and they're UX legends. Um, they help create the human interface guidelines, I believe, at Apple. And they wrote this scathing critique of modern Apple design. A lot of it. Is this a back in my day kind of story? Is it no, no. Curmudgeons? It's not curmudgeons. It's about people who have seen the, um, the transition of UI. It goes back right. to the discussion we had last week about mobile versus desktop, cursor based systems and tiled window systems versus a touch based paradigm. Mm. And as Apple has basically two operating systems in the wild now, Mac, Mac OS and iOS, uh, the interface guidelines for both, they, they, they shift. Right. And it's more of a critique of iOS, but basically the interface guidelines for iOS now omit many of the, the basic tenets uh, of good design in their right. minds, human interface design of macOS. Uh, it's, sure, it's beautiful, but a lot of the ease of access, discoverability, uh, usability uh, is gone for the sake of ease of access, uh, for be beauty. And it goes into a really high, long, uh, good detail mm -hmm. uh, about, you know, looking at the the uh, the the, uh, the human interface design principles, the transition from what it was in 1995 to 2008, 2015, and now uh, between OS 10 and iOS, and the the lessons of iOS, you see this list of what's what's kind of essential mm -hmm. in human in in UI design and UX design. It's shrunken not only for iOS, but on, in OS X as well. You lose a lot of things. Um, hmm. A lot of important things. I mean, I think the complexity of iOS, iOS needed to be simple to start. There's right. no doubt about that. It was a, it was a new thing. Yeah. You know, touch interfaces were new. The screens were smaller. The, the, the way we implement, uh, the way Apple and, and developers, first web apps and, and then native apps implemented interface, uh, within their apps and also on the on the the main home screen need to be simple because it was a new language and people will learn right. fast i mean it's native for for kids these days uh, but as ios increases in complexity and its functionality things like the ipad pro the things you're able to do now with it i think really fall short of its potential because of its guidelines hmm. i certainly can relate to the interface getting to come complex. I think that's a, a real problem for anyone who's new to iOS. There's probably features they don't even know exist yet, having used the phone for months. Yeah, um, and it's not discoverable. Does the article <laughs> reflect on Android at all? No, it's pr <laughs> primarily a critique of, uh, of Apple. Okay. Well, this is also, I mean, when the OS X came out, there was a lot of traditional, old-school uh, Mac designers that went berserk because there, there used to be literally like a yard and a half of manuals that basically outlined everything inside the Macintosh design Bible. And if you if you broke those, the your your users beat on you and Apple beat on you. Then OS ten came out and it was really this dog's breakfast of mismatching things. I mean from an uh, from from the underlying standpoint it was magnificent engineering, but from an interface standpoint it was a radical step back in terms of consistency and enforcement. Um, and I'm going way back to the introduction of OS ten with this. And this is just these guys are just it's interesting that now they're saying like it's no longer about simple design elements, but around the entire approach to the operating system, where yeah. they've they're so desperate to make it simple, they've made it more complex well, again. Well, Apple has, has has really championed the idea of simplicity is better. Simplicity is good design, mm -hmm. um, and it's not those things aren't absolutely tied together. Just because something is complex doesn't mean it, it can't be good design. It just has to be designed well. Right, um, and. 
And I think when you ask about Android, they did mention Android. I think the biggest difference, uh, early Android and even Android now, and, and some of iOS nine now, is the back functionality, which Apple has integrated in iOS nine. Some contextual on-screen back uh, back button, which feels. I mean, it works, but it does feel a little shoehorned in. But they started iOS with no back functionality. It was just to go home. Was and it's that was. I think it was bad design. It's one of the reasons I think Apple and. Back in on Android and and the back button on Windows Phone, um, aren't perfect. Right. weren't perfect and still aren't perfect. But it's the way people think about how they interface. It's a linear way right. of interfacing with the device, and I think Apple has acknowledged that with that back functionality now on iOS. You see when you click from one app to another, there's in the top left hand corner the back button back to this specific thing. But for the first eight versions of iOS, yeah. they didn't have that. Yeah. And, and and app and developers had had to accommodate for that, had to, had to build their apps with that in mind, without that functionality in mind, yeah. and make things either take away features or make things more simple, so to accommodate that. I mean, it's funny, they, they, you know, they actually call that Android for having a, a back button from the original versions. Um, Who did Apple did? Uh, the, uh, no, the, 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 the people reviewing the article actually call oh. out uh, Android for having the good sense to put a back button everywhere and universally available. Um, you know, uh, you know it, they're basically they talk about Google Maps becoming more attractive and more confusing. Um, and it's funny, like Microsoft Windows 8 is actually a clever and intelligent design for gestural devices, solving many of the problems we have just described, but fails to integrate the different operation style required of desktop machines uh, intended for productive work. Um, it's a it's a curious article because I think they're just really pissed that Apple lost the way. Um, well, it, it, I don't think it's so much lost the way, but maybe got so clouded with this idea of beauty and simplicity and that being a huge selling point right. is that they they champion that at the expense of usability, and they and and hide and omit the opportunity to develop and and design uh, for complexity, which is a good thing for mm -hmm. users, especially when we're talking about things like the iPad Pro, where they're championing the ability to to, uh, to do actual productive work on it. Right. You know, it's going to be tough for app developers to get out of that mindset. Right. Uh, when you know, and and yes, users respond to beauty and simplicity, and it has allowed iOS to be adopted worldwide and and been so successful. But you have to let go of some of those tenets and go back to the original design principles that you set out, um, and not feel like because you ha things need to be beautiful, they also mm -hmm. can't be complex and they can't be discoverable, and you can't have you know the old models of design. Yeah, I mean they're also calling out like Johnny Ives and Steve. I mean, because they get into the whole sort of Dieter Rams design principles. I mean, you know, the missing principles, uh, discoverability, feedback, recovery, consistency, the encouragement of growth. I mean, that's a pretty huge indictment over the overall operating system. But, you know, they also, they're very like, quote, many of the worst of Apple's hidden principles are often excused by claiming that Apple is only following the teachings of famous German designer Dieter Rams, who for many years was responsible basically for Braun, all these, these incredible radical changes in, in interface design on physical devices. Um, you know, they specifically cite the 10th principle, good design is as little design as possible. But note, the authors say, that this is his 10th principle, not his first. Um, I think they're just, they're really pissed that they went for pretty and simple over making it usable. Um, 
Yep, absolutely. I mean, and, and usability. I mean, last week we talked about uh, the iPad Pro, which we're still currently testing, and the idea that uh, Apple is positioning it as a device that could, for some people, replace a laptop. I don't disagree. I think mm -hmm. for some people, the functionality and having used the iPad Pro with a keyboard for a uh, week and a half now, it definitely, in some ways, can replace the the functionality of a laptop. <laughs> Not everything. A, that's practically a glowing endorsement. Yeah, I, I mean... it. <laughs> I think Apple wants to sell you two devices, uh, yeah. at least two devices, three devices, the I, ideally. Point, if they want to sell, well, I, I just, I don't understand why the, how the Pro fits. I just, the Pro just seems like a half-assed attempt to do something. I don't think it's a half-assed attempt. It is a smart attempt to sell the people who have the money and who are foolish enough to, with a disposable income to buy everything in the ecosystem. I don't know. I feel like the Pro is being positioned, at least in terms by the media, as another alternative for everyone, and it's not. It's not. It's, and it's it for. I think it's great for artists. It's great for people who who are going to use the stylus professionally, or even as a hobby. But the, other than that, I don't see why it's being marketed to everybody. The media's perception, not just on Apple, but for everyone, uh, other companies as well, of a one device, the, the golden device that fits all. Every product needs to be a golden device. Uh, is terrible. Right. Uh, and writing their stories and reviews that way is very misleading. Um, it happened with the Microsoft Surface. Now, Microsoft did make mistakes when they announced the first Surface because, you know, it looked like a tablet because it didn't have the keyboard, but it was fat. And when people reviewed that first Surface, they compared it to the iPad. Like, oh, my God, it's so much fatter and bat worse battery life than that. The Surface is not a tablet. The Surface is a laptop that doesn't have a keyboard that you can buy an optional keyboard. Right. And even Microsoft's current uh, tagline for the Surface, the tablet that can replace your laptop, it's their fault as well. To, to sell to to mislead it's I think it, it goes back to consumers don't want to think like they have to buy so many devices and Microsoft has done a good job of selling one device that can maybe cover many like eighty percent of the needs of a laptop and eight uh, maybe fifty sixty percent of the needs of a tablet user right with the surface mm -hmm. which is good enough for a lot of people <laughs> Apple very clearly wants to sell you a MacBook or an iMac like a you know a Mac OS device an iPhone, for sure. And a watch. And then a watch, that's right. <laughs> and then also an iPad. And this Christmas, a watch charger. And this Christmas, a magnetic watch charger. Uh, Tim Cook said they will not make a converged iPad and Mac device. Uh, we've speculated. To. Uh, and this, what, what he really means is they won't combine uh, Mac OS with iOS. They absolutely won't they, until they do. Until <laughs> <laughs> I, think we're, I think we're both on the same side of this fence. Like, uh -huh. you, yeah. think, you think they will? Yeah. Uh, well, the first step to that would be turning uh, Mac OS, porting it to ARM. So that would be well, Signifier 1. They already have an, I, an iOS simulator in OS X. All you have to do is download Xcode and right. you get access to it. Right. right. So they could run iOS apps on OS X pretty simply. I mean, I imagine they would have to put some engineering behind it, spend a year getting it right. Yeah. But they could do it. Never say never. Always the thing with Apple. You know, when they say never, what they really mean is not right now. And how you should interpret that, how users should interpret that, is why not right now? One, is it a money-making scheme? Is it because they want to saturate the market with this new, these new models of usage first? Uh, two, is the tech not ready yet? Um, and, for example, Mac OS not being ARM-native, absolutely, tech isn't ready yet. Right. Three, is the usability case not figured out yet? So right now, people use Mac OS devices with keyboards. Mm -hmm. with mice cursors. It's a cursor-based tiled window system. iOS, 
even with multitasking, isn't that yet. So software isn't that yet. And accelerometer plays a big role in a lot of apps. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so if Mac OS had ARM, perfect ARM support, if the hardware was fa if the hardware was fast enough, which increasingly ARM is getting better, the form factors can get there, battery life yeah. can get there, and if if the software, if Mac OS starts gets better, it gets touch support. Period, and iOS gets better multitasking, then absolutely I could see one converged device in the future. But there's so many steps to, to get there, and right yeah. now there's so much money to be made in each of those steps <laughs> to get there that, yeah, I don't, it's nowhere in the near future. Right. I mean, when, when, when Tim Cook says they won't make a converged Mac, iPad, Mac device, right. what he really means is don't hold your breath for it now because we want your money while you're holding your breath. Part, I mean, part of it's funny because the article that this was pulled from comes from uh, the Independent in Ireland, um, you know, and the 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 reporter is basically like, okay, so you know, how how long is it before you guys stop making Macs, you know, MacBooks and right. desktop Macs? And you know, he was like, no, 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 you know, why would you buy a PC? I mean, I understand why you would buy a Mac. <laughs> Or a Mac Pro, but why would you buy it? Like, it's it's so much. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, quote it's it's a terrible question to ask because the what is the point of asking that question? Right. Like, it, it, to if a someone, CEO, to a CEO, you're basically asking them like, okay, from financial perspective, oh, you know, is this market in like, is how's your business going to change? Right. And which like, one, it's not his role to tell you their future roadmap plans right now. Two, from a usability perspective. Uh, it's pointless because the software isn't there. Right. Like unless the unless the their software was there right now, and we had Photoshop, we had perfect video editing tools and right. productivity tools on iOS. That question is completely moot. Like, of course, people are going to still use Mac OS and desktop class right. devices and cursor-based tiled Windows systems. Of course, Apple's going to make those. Like, that's where people are using them now. Yeah. Like, well, may, maybe the markets are maybe there's a there's going to be a shift and. But Apple wants to sell as many devices in every category as possible. I, would, I think Apple would love a world where no one uses OS X, though, because they built OS X when it was an open platform, and they added the walled garden, whereas they built iOS from the ground up as a walled garden. And so they have complete as much control yeah. as they want over and, it. And I think the garden's going to get a lot more walled with the experiments they're running on the Apple Watch and the Apple TV where they're controlling the footprint of the app and they're forcing the apps yeah. to live in the cloud. Uh, you know, you can well, download it. They're, they're, not, they're not guaranteeing space on the, on the drive for the app. I think, I, I think that whole thing is going to get really messy and bite them in the ass. Yeah. But. When they do combine the two platforms, it's going to be due to pressure from the outside. So, Jeremy, when you say you don't think Apple, you, you think Apple would love to, for people to stop using Mac OS, you mean Mac OS as it currently exists right now. Sure. If they close the garden, <laughs> on Mac OS, and that's fine. Well, they, the App Store enjoy. on OS X is closed. I mean, you have yeah. to get, go through it's them to step get on one. There. But it's an open platform in that you can download your apps from anywhere. Well, Xcode exists. I mean, Xcode on Mac on iOS would allow for a similar thing. I don't see them being able to close that garden. I just don't see it. You don't see it? Well, well it'll be on Adobe and, uh, and other app developers to keep on making good programs on <laughs> Mac OS and desktop-based systems so well, that, that platform doesn't go away. 
I don't know. It's also like the irony where where he's telling the Daily Telegraph, like, why would you buy any PC? Any, like, why would you buy a PC anymore? No, really, why would you buy one? Well, to run Premiere because you guys abandoned Final Cut. Um, well, yeah, I mean, like to to run, you know, to have an affordable tool to run any of a number of development tools. Like it, it's it's so. I mean, Tim Cook's usually not this disingenuous or self serving, but I, I think he was probably also getting irked with the British media or something. Hmm. But it's like, why would you buy a PC anymore? Well, why would you buy a Macintosh anymore? Why would you buy, you know, a MacBook? Yeah. Like, and it's like, you know, I see a MacBook, I see MacBooks, I see them everywhere, but, you know, there's still a lot of reasons to buy a PC. Until in, with an Apple in oh, every level of their, of their company, from design to marketing to creating the videos they use at, the, at their keynotes, unless it's all on iOS and the apps are there, it's never going to change. Like, right. Even within the company. Like, if you can't build the lathe that builds the, another lathe, <laughs> then the iOS device isn't delayed yet. Right. Yeah, it's not going to make itself. But they're going to make cars soon. But they're going to make cars soon. Hold on. All right, time for another uh, call out to our sponsor. Today, the sponsor for this week's episode of This Only Test, another sponsor is Casper Mattresses, obsessively engineered American-made mattresses at a shockingly fair price. Listen, you spend about a third of your life sleeping, so let's make sure you do it on a good mattress. Casper brings together two comfy technologies together for better nights and brighter days, latex foam and memory foam. So they got just the right amount of sink and just the right bounce no matter how you sleep. And here's the good news. They've got a risk-free trial and return policy. The mattresses are delivered straight to you, and you can try them for 100 days. If you're not happy, they'll pick them back up. It's pretty neat, and I've been using one for a little bit, and I like it. It's great. Uh, it's cool. It comes in a box, and then it actually unfolds out, uh, out of the, the packaging. Um, it's $500 for a twin-size mattress and $950 for a king-size mattress, and it's a really good price point compared to industry standards. And now... For listeners of this podcast, you can get $50 toward any mattress purchase by going to casper.com slash test and using the offer code test, just like this podcast, T-E-S-T. <laughs> Terms and conditions do apply, and uh, let us know if you bought a Casper mattress and how you like it. Uh, so thank them for sponsoring this week's episode of This Is Only a Test, and now, on with the show. Hey, when's the last, I, last time you guys went to Disneyland? Okay. Uh, February of this year, 1985. Nice. <laughs> Patrick, are you an anti-Disneyland person? I uh, I don't know that I'm anti-Disneyland, but the last time I went there, um, it was profoundly unpleasant uh, because of tweens and just being hammered on and ro- it was it was like all the downside of the the New York City subway system with little of the entertainment, none hmm. of the great food. But um, you should go again. I, I'll go again. Someday, I, <laughs> you have kids. Come on, don't well, they? Don't they want to see Disneyland? It's no. They don't do, they really, kn- do they know it exists? They don't really know it exists. Oh, I have what, I have in laws in L.A. with kids, and they haven't told their kids that, that it exists yet. Oh, that'd be t- I mean, that's a dangerous thing to tell kids that absolutely. In LA. Well, it's it's not, but it's not like it, you know was when when we were all seven or ten, where everybody knew about it and everybody watched like the Disney programming on the right. like. It's not it's the wonderful no world of Disney this, every yeah, Fridays. It's no longer this linchpin. Like you know, my 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 boys still don't entirely understand like what the castle that they see at the beginning of the Pixar movies is. Oh, they were. The longer I can keep it that way, the happier everybody is. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel you. 
then I, I understand the, like the commercialization of Disneyland and right. that what that represents, and you can be completely against that and also hate crowds. Uh, it's mostly about not losing my three-year-old in a crowd while spending several hundred dollars. Kids are rent. never never lost. They're, I don't I don't think they've ever lost haven't lost a kid in a long time. Well, Disney my children. Oh wait, there's one right there. <laughs> <laughs> there's no off season anymore. So right. whenever you go, just go during the week. Do not go on the weekend right. yeah. and try to pick a month that's not crazy after the holidays is the best time. Mm-hmm. Um, Super Bowl weekend, I think, was is a, a popular time to, for, to avoid the crowds. Or even right after Thanksgiving is supposed to be a good time to go. Right. Uh, but I appreciate the design of Disneyland. Sure. The interesting, like, how, how it feels like it really is an enclosed space. Not California Adventure, but actually Disneyland Park mm-hmm. itself. Um, and also, it's like, it's an efficient operation. I've got to be impressed with yep. the logistics. How many people they employ to turn it over every night. Right. I mean, the park, all the lights come on when, when they close the park at like 12 or 1 a.m. A whole team of people come in and clean it from, so it's brand yeah. new. If you compare it to Paramount Park or Six Flags, it's a different league. You know, it's, yeah. it's very clean. The food's not bad. And uh, it's pretty friendly. Why are we talking about Disneyland, well, Norm? Well, <laughs> there's a new Star Wars movie coming out, and Disneyland. What? Has, I, 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 I don't know if you knew this. Uh, and uh, Disneyland has actually redone a bunch of its rides and parks, uh, park attractions for Star Wars. This is not the new Star Wars Land that's going to come out in several years. Right. Star um, Wars Land. But like they redid Space Mountain to be Hyperspace Mountain. Dude, when I saw I saw this on Twitter, and this was a real "Why wasn't I notified?" moment. <laughs> you know, the, this happened like three days ago. And um, they've completely redone Tomorrowland in a Star Wars theme. It's called the Season of the Force. It's fancy. I mean, they, if now if you ride Space Mountain, which is my favorite ride at Disneyland, it goes back to like 1970 something. Your top, your most favorite or liked tweet of all time is me right on you the on Disney Space Point. Mountain. Yeah. yeah. Um, but now when you ride it, they've changed the soundtrack from that like 70s space rock mm-hmm. opera mm-hmm. to a Star Wars uh, soundtrack, and you are you are in an X-wing. <laughs> And you're fighting TIE fighters and Star Destroyers. Sorry, now I'm hearing the 70s swing version of the Star Wars thing. But, <laughs> like, I don't know if you remember that, but, but now I'm like envisioning like, you know, the, the, the 70s do-over, yeah. the, the, the bad 70s I think that would be do-over. brilliant. You can watch it. It's on YouTube. People have already shot it from the front car. Mm, uh, now it's an, nice. it's an indoor. Stabilized? No, it's an, oh. and it's an indoor ride, so it's dark most <laughs> of the time. Tested listeners out there, I want you to go to Disneyland, because I'm not going to go this holiday season. No, you should go. You, sh- you have the equipment. I know. You have the technology. If you look Bring around this place. Bring a DJI Osmo or another, the Fayutech Stabilized Gimbal. Use a GoPro <laughs> oh, Hero awesome. 3 or 4. Yeah. Turn up the ISO. Turn up the low light mode, wide angle, and record Hyperspace Mountain do from you, the front seat. It's limited. A- do you have a bail bondsman on tap to get them out of Disney jail if they, they get caught <laughs> Disney jail's a real experience? thing. No, people tape the experience all the time. No selfie sticks, I guess, at Disneyland. That's so true. you couldn't bring the DJI Osmo. But the stabilized gimbal, the wearable gimbal, mount that on your chest and <laughs> and get the full stabilized roller coaster experience. It never turns you upside down, so I think it's going to work in those three axes. There's also new Star Tours adventures. There's uh, new characters in Jedi training, including somebody from Star Wars Rebels. And they finally did something with that Innovations Hub that HP sponsored for the longest time. Oh, did they use that? They're using it for a museum for the new movies. I think there are actually some really? cool costumes from the new museum movies. Museum or advertisement? It was really, like I think HP sponsored it as a museum because I remember like, like the carousel of the future. Like yeah. even out the idea how long it's been since I've been in Disneyland where it was like, you know, looking at stuff that was 20 years outdated when I saw it in like 1985. <laughs> they tried three. to salvage it a couple years ago by putting the Marvel characters in there and like, you know, <laughs> Iron Man, 
Iron Man's lab and you know some some movie promotion stuff. Yeah. But it still wasn't like the best. Use. I did see Ibo there. Pretty, the, Ibo? Isn't that the yeah. no? Is that the dog? No, no I saw dog. the walking robot. Oh, uh, you're talking about the the Honda? Um, yeah. uh Asmo. Asmo. Thank you. Asmo. Yeah, very good. Yeah. That was pretty impressive. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I'd go. Yeah, I don't know if I'm going this year. You can meet uh, Chewbacca. <laughs> Chewbacca. Um, hey, you know, the uh, 17th was the um, anniversary of the Star Wars holiday special. Yeah. Have you ever watched that? I have not. I'm going to put it on. <laughs> I, can, I have a copy. I'm going to put it on this holiday for a holiday party. But I have not actually seen the original I watched Star the Wars. first four, half hour. I couldn't believe how boring it was. Uh-huh. And I didn't watch the rest of it. But well, apparently the, the whole cast is in it. The pacing on television was so difference it's true but i think people hated it then too like it was bad even for 1978 well that was also you know when battle of the network stars used to still be going on and all that other horrible stuff yeah how many places can we recycle <laughs> these people we have under contract and you'll do this and you'll do this and you'll do this so um of course there's a new star wars movie coming out and if you're on social media it's so difficult to avoid any bit of information i know even the best intentions people are sharing links from like photos behind the scenes, you can see like the stormtrooper helmets, some of the photo movie props. Wired has a new, uh, their latest issue is all about Star Wars. Their cover and has like these big images. I'm trying to avoid as much as possible in the next month or so, or even <laughs> one month away. You know where I heard we that... are less than one yeah, we month are. away from Episode Seven. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Yeah, that was this whole thing happened one month before that. Wow. Um, so. <laughs> Uh, in the new Wired article, uh, Wired issue, there's an article. It's also online, written by Adam Rogers, um, as a friend of Tested, and he does an interview with about uh, with Kathleen Kennedy and, and writes about the the movie industrial complex, the current blockbuster industrial complex. And his big headline and 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 thesis for the story is, "You will never see the end of Star Wars," and it's kind of a sad thing that Star Wars is no longer this set of movies. As it once was, it's it's no longer this catalog of this the three movies. Mm. It's no longer just the six movies or the, even the TV shows. It is an ongoing, infinite mm-hmm. storyline. They're going to keep making material until people get bored of it and, and won't watch it. Yes, and I don't think people are going to stop ever get bored of it. Uh, and you'll never see when you when on your dying breath, you'll never have seen the full Star Wars. It's a, it's a universe trying to bring that universe through money to build a reality. Yeah, and it's happened with every every franchise, every big blockbuster franchise. Uh, I don't know about that. Not like Star Wars. Star Wars is not, more than any. Not like St- Star Wars re- is revered. It, it's. I mean, it came at about a time where, because of the you know in in, in the history of cinema and, and culture and media and and how people watch media, it resonated in a way that no other form of media. It was not Homer's, you know, the, uh, the Iliad, right? It mm-hmm. was not the Odyssey. Um, you know, it, it is a modern myth that I mean, imagine if the Greeks kept on writing myth, myths forever. <laughs> okay. And there was you. no no canon. And, yeah. Right. Um, it's it's crazy to think about. Like, how how will these franchises? Because we think of them. I mean, they are commercial products. I don't know. I care about the characters I grew up with. I'm sure after this next few movies. That those characters will be, you know, done over. They'll be finished with. Yeah. And they'll move on to the next generation's characters. I won't care as much. I'll be okay. What's really interesting with Star Wars is that while we love the characters and we love, it's more about the universe that people love. And as Lucasfilm and Disney continue to make Star Wars movies and content forever, 
they're going to tell the story. The prequels are going to tell, like, I mean, there's already KOTOR. There's already 50,000 years in the past. Right. They'll tell, a, they'll, they'll fill out the little gaps in a universe, right? Kind of telling it almost in, yeah. maybe some of it in real time, some of it won't in real time. Star Wars, the, the current movies and the new movies, it's all kind of real time, 30 years ago, 30 years now, within that 100-year time frame. With the Marvel movie franchise and superhero movies, it's different because it's less about building out. You can build the breadth of universe or the depth of universe, and, but they just kind of turn it over and reboot it. And so you yeah. can say, okay, for the Batman movies, I love Batman. He's an enduring character, 100 years old. You have this kind of block of the Tim Burton Batmans, the Christopher Nolan Batmans, and now whatever the Zack Snyder Batmans, the comic Batmans. They're like... It's almost like, more like myth, myth telling, where you're telling the same story over and over again about a character, in, about a character in yeah. new ways. Star Wars is different because it's not going to be about Darth Vader and Luke forever. Mm. It's going to be about well, the whole universe characters genre. forever. I mean, it's, it's it's gone from being like this weird little space opera to being this entire. Because you, you look at the history of Lucas's output, and it's all over the map. And I don't, you know, I still want to kick things whenever I think about Jar Jar Binks and, and all the Crystal characters. Skull. Oh, goodness. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, but it, it's so like his, 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 you know, he created this incredible thing. And, you know. But was he, what he created the universe or was what he created the story and the characters? Well, what he created was, 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 you know, he, he got the merchandising rights, and for the first time ever, the merchandising rights were probably worth more than the movie, and that changed, like, the entire film industry, probably not for the better, but it is what it is. So that gave him this huge amount of license, um, and the fact that the movie made ridiculous amounts of money, the first one. So he, he, you know, it's just like, you know, the second one gets better, the third one gets worse, and then he decides finally to do the first three, and, you know, we remember why we didn't really like George Lucas as a director after Star Wars for any of a number of reasons. Um, you know, so my question is, one, you know, for the people who are there to watch the original Star Wars, right. which you guys were, <laughs> Do, is Star Wars enduring, and is Star, does Star Wars resonate because of Episode Four and that story, or is it enduring because of the universe? And so, when the universe is expanded, does it feel like a deepening of a connection to Star Wars, or is it dilution? Well, I mean, the reason the original one worked is it's the journey of the hero, right? This is enduring Man with sort a thousand. of, ba- yeah, yeah. I mean, this is this is enduring basal stuff that goes back, you know, mm-hmm. as as far as we can remember, sort of oral storytelling. Yep. Um, the universe happens to be spectacular because in 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 Lucas's quest to figure out more and more things for Hasbro to put on toy shelves and for kids to fight over. Uh, you know, or for parents to beat each other for over up to get, he just kept creating more and more characters and more and more obscure elements. And it's great. Like everything in the Star Wars universe has a name. Like, yeah. you know, and there's no other genre of sci-fi where every single element, except for maybe like, you know, Frank Herbert's crazier offerings. But there's like every single character, every single character has this fully developed backstory because, you know, first there was like the movies and then there was the books and the toys and the... And I mean, the, that's fantasy. The, yeah, but it's like, but it's also, it's, you know, Gibson had this idea, this character that he, he put in called Continuity. Uh, and continuity was the network, the television network, or the the virtual experience network. And continuity is this unbelievably smart artificial intelligence that was constantly like knitting all the different disparate elements to keep these, you know, whatever these daytime soap operas were going on forever and continually. And and what Disney's trying to do with Star Wars is to create this idea of this continuity, this constantly involving moving continuity. Con- thank you. <laughs> um, 
I thought it was a special pronunciation. <laughs> no, it's, I have a reader's vocabulary. I thought it was okay. bedraggled till I was like 22 years old and embarrassed myself in college. But the uh, uh, bedraggled, not bedraggled. But the uh, the the whole idea that 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 they can create this permanently evolving universe, which is which kind is of, a way of creating an alternate universe. Sure. Even if it's not spatially and dimensionally real and physics wise, right? And in the shared consciousness of a culture, it ex it is just as real. If we yeah. impart names and story on these things, mm -hmm. it is just as real as memories in the past, whether they are physical objects or not. And there's a, that, that's a strong, there's a strong connection to that. Right. And people really gravitate th toward that. It's why continuity and canon are things when people are fans <laughs> of franchises really, really attach themselves to. Yeah. Um, but which, it goes which, back. You know, oh, that was say, but that's what's always so frustrating about Marvel. Like, I can't deal with the Marvel comic books anymore. Because, you know, about the time I started to get into, you know, the Marvel, started thinking about Marvel comic books again and the stories, they started doing that whole universe reboot thing. And I just remember being like, this, like, I know why they did this. This is, like, smart and lazy and irritating, and I can't deal with them, but the movies are great. <laughs> so here's a question. In, in, in talking about the Forever franchise, which is what right. this Adam Rogers story is about, you know, whether we like it or not, it's going to happen. Um, you know the myths that we have created in modern it's a pop business. culture. It, it, one, because it's a business, and because business. two, people want it. Right? It wouldn't happen as, as humans, as natural storytellers. Um, we want to ha to tell those stories, and we like the stories that resonate. And if you look at what Disney owns, which are two of the biggest kind of universes sure. in commercial culture right now, mm -hmm. Frozen and Toy Story. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's right. Uh, Marvel, Marvel, and Star Wars. Uh, the way that they're approaching these forever franchises are different. Uh, Star Wars is about the build, continual building right. of a continuity and an alternate reality in the minds of storytellers. And Marvel, it seems like, even with their more expanding Marvel universe, is going to be a recycling over time, a renewal of the these tropes and sure. these characters, the retelling of Iron Man, the retelling of Batman on the DC side. Um, I don't know which one I, I like more. I mean, there can be good stories in both, but I almost, my God, I... I mean, it's, I don't know. It's, it's really fascinating. Like, One thing at a time, right? I 50 mean, years from now. Let's let J.J. have his time in the spotlight. Yeah. I, I got a good feeling about this film. Mm -hmm. I'm feeling good about the next one. It's all trap. <laughs> it is. Your original question about why is this enduring, I think, is, is a fascinating thing. Because it, this did come out of the Cold War. It, like Patrick was saying, nothing like this movie was ever made on several fronts. Right. It's interesting that... My kids, I don't know about your kids, but my kids are into Star Wars. Yes. Like, what, they don't have their Star Wars yet. You know, they've, they've adopted ours. They've inherited ours. And then, do they revere the original, the seed of Star Wars, that, that hero's journey as what it is? Or is that just another piece of the world building, the universe that was created? Well, yeah. I mean, a three-year-old or a seven-year-old, a seven-year-old approaches Star Wars radically different from a teenager, which is radically difficult from an adult, which is radical dif you know, radically different from somebody who's older, right? Because, but that's the whole point of, of you know, the hero with a thousand faces is that you it it resonates with you you know with like, a certain age yeah the seven-year-old yeah. it's all about like you know the seven-year-old taught the three-year-old to run around with this little toy broom and go boom because they have blasters you know um and then but as a teenager watching it it's a radically different experience because it's like hey i'm stuck in snodgrass suburbia and i hate my life and hey I, maybe i'll have a big adventure and go somewhere it's something that a storyteller like jj abrams who grew up who who was seated with that original star wars sure and Kasdan undoubtedly understand, and their success, I think, will be measured by how much 
the episode seven characters and story resonate. If 30 years from now, the generation that your kids are, if they feel like their Luke and their, their Han and their Leia are the characters in this episode seven new movie, then they, and then JJ will have succeeded. Interesting. If yeah. they feel they still gravitate toward Luke and Darth Vader and, yeah. and Yoda, then I think it's going to be a failure on the franchise's part. As I, I told you after Halloween, my kid dressed up as Kylo Ren and his best friend <laughs> right. d- dressed up as, uh, Ray, if Kyle, and and I think that that leads. I mean, part of that is marketing because the movie has to come out yet. Raccoon, (laughs) (laughs) but the hero with a thousand faces, the thousand faces of Star Wars, maybe begins with Luke, and then goes on in into infinity with every every retelling the story, as opposed to Batman, where it's Michael Keaton, Christian Bale, Ben Affleck. which I think, you know, for some people, that's a huge success. Like for some people, if you ask them, who is your Batman? Some people will say Adam West. I love Adam West. Yeah, some yeah. will say, I, I grew up with the Tim Burton. That, that speaks to me. Michael the Keaton. 90s, the Michael Keaton right. Batman. Some, oh, I love the, the storytelling, the cinematography of Nolan's Batman. That is a huge success on DC's part. Whenever those, and there are some mm-hmm. Batman interpretations that weren't No one says George Clooney. Nobody. And that's it's fine. But the fact that you can call out three great Batman. Yeah. Right is a testament to not or, only the character but also the storyteller's ability to to renew that character. The way you're talking about Star Wars is interesting because when they bought it, when Disney purchased the Star Wars Empire, they uh, they paid, I forget what it was, but it paled in comparison to what they paid for Pixar. Yep. And it was because Pixar is a IP generating machine. Yep. And so they figured that they would make, you know, much more money off of that license, off of that ability to have that that studio. But the way you're talking about Star Wars, it sounds pretty endless too. It is, but it's unproven. The IP is unproven. Right. Well, it's certainly been proven with, like, you know, nerdly kids in the 1980s buying paperback books, and and the toys certainly had a, a, a depth that's really kind of rivaled only by maybe Transformers or My Little Ponies. But It's a depth versus a breadth. Like, yeah. when, when Pixar, when every, when Cars and Inside Out, each itself then can branch into... Sure. It, it's a difference between buying... A money-making machine-making factory, and just one money-making machine. <laughs> well, but but I mean, yes and no, because because you know I I I'll be honest with you, I was blown away. Like I wasn't expecting a lot. Do you want to buy the Man. goose with the, that makes golden eggs, or do you want to buy two geese that can reproduce and make more geese that makes golden eggs? Well, I, I would obviously want the reproducing geese <laughs> making more and more golden eggs because I'm human and I'm greedy, right? But the the or I'd just be happy with one golden goose and not slaughtering it to find the gold mine inside. But the 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 <laughs> <laughs> the the thing I mean it's it's curious because you know Pixar has done an a, amazing number of hits but you know like nobody mentions the airplane movie that was the spinoff from Cars that straight was not video. not straight to video not made by Pixar um, no I'm thinking about the one before that but the uh, planes wasn't made by Pixar nope not made by Pixar Disney really yeah oh wow oh yeah. Well, that just makes me so happy. I did not know that. <laughs> come on, come on, uh, give us another one. I, well, no, you talk about the number one Pixar fan right here, Jeremy Williams. I, I, I. Well, it's it's funny. Like we we eat, you know, fairly irregularly, but regularly enough at at Rudy's Can't Fail Cafe. And oh, we I love always it. admire the 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 seagull on the corner of the Pixar building, and mm-hmm. we've looped the Pixar building several times because I know someday they're going to put a secret entrance to the ultra cool playground for the for the kids in the East Bay, but. Uh, they never do, uh, but there's so many elements there. But uh, the reason I'm going down this particular hole is because the, they are trying to create something new, right? Because because 
you know, DC's gotten kind of lucky and kind of not lucky, and Marvel's been extraordinarily good about nurturing. Once they figured out that they had this giant money mine in these characters, like they certainly still do the comic books and they care about the comic books, but they, they unleash this absolute beast in Hollywood that's going after all the eyeballs in all the world, and it's done pretty well with it. And I certainly think that's what, what they hope to do with Star Wars. And what I love about uh, what's happening now in the comic book industry and Marvel and DC is... You know, they say, oh, it's so tough to create an enduring character now that resonates. People love Batman. They love Superman. They love Wonder Woman. Uh, and those are the ones that, like, how do you create a new Batman? And, and it's been so tough. Right. Well, you know how you create a new Batman? Don't create another angsty billionaire who decides to be a vigilante. <laughs> Tell more diverse stories. The new heroes in those universes and the new writers who are working on characters that are creating new characters they can be permutations of the old characters, like a new Captain Marvel. Sure. But guess a new Spider-Man. But the reason they're enduring, the reason that the new Ultimate Spider-Man is the only character that survived at the death of his universe, Miles Morales, is because he represents not just a kid, a white kid in New York, the nerdy kid. We've had a lot of those stories. Let's tell a different story now. And the, the, uh, While the still con- adhering to that power of myth kind of exactly. story. Yes. Yeah, it's a thousand faces. Got got to introduce more of those faces, and and that's why it's really resonating. And congrats to the writers for for mm-hmm. seeing there. Back to a little bit about technology. Uh, there are a couple of teardowns that iFixit, iFixit, of course, the site that they not only sell the tools for you to repair products, but also they do awesome teardowns mm-hmm. of tech gear. Uh, they did two teardowns recently that I think were notable. One, the Fairphone 2. Have you heard about this phone? It's nope. a modular phone, and iFixit gave it a rare 10 out of 10. For fixability? For fixability and repairability. Oh, well. They said it couldn't be done. Yeah. Uh, this is an Android phone. It's a Dutch company. It's kind of expensive, but you, with just a screwdriver, you can take this phone down and replace almost every single part. It's not the Google Aura phone where the modulability is kind of a pl- really plug and play where you can slide out a module. Right. Uh, this one does have a chassis. You have to take it out, and the, the modules do look more like your, your, uh, your logic boards, mm-hmm. and so you have a better form factor, but almost every part is replaceable. Which is pretty amazing. Yeah. And in, in having broken apart a, a bunch of phones and tablets, it's astonishingly easy to hmm. pull apart by so a what, smartphone. What are the downsides of it? Is it bulky? It's a little bulky, a little yeah. bulkier. Yeah. Um, and it costs. Snapdragon 801. It, it does cost. I, I think the dream of a fully repairable phone, it's a really admirable goal. But to be pragmatic, I really only want a few things. You th- <laughs> look at your phone and look at what breaks. Does a microphone break no it's the it's the screen have you ever it's, gotten the microphone wet uh, true no no and, and of course it's a, it's a long tail issue right. but i think in terms of i don't think it's reasonable to ask a major a smartphone manufacturer or and, and of course not apple because they'll do whatever the fuck they want uh to make a fully modular phone right? i can hear i can hear kyle's teeth grinding all the way in san luis obispo his ears are burning red and his teeth are grinding because you basically and it's I, but it's funny because like i've been i've been looking at uh dell's uh uh, uh, Inspiron 7000, 7059, which is like a $799 gaming laptop. And it's huge, yeah. right? It's a 15.6 inch screen. It's like an inch thick. And I'm like laughing because it's an inch thick and it feels like I'm carrying a lunch tray. 
but it's like the equivalent of a Core i5 with a 750Ti, and there's actually two full SODIM slots, and there's a full-size 2.5-inch hard drive, and there's a... there's a uh, Accessible? Accessible. There's <laughs> one screw to pop the back off. Right. You know? And the accessibility, so, love it. Yes. I, I think that as opposed to trying to reach that 10 out of 10 repairability score, mm -hmm. which, you know, you just have to make a business and sell a good phone with good software, um, it really is to illustrate the fact that we do need phones that have at least batteries that are replaceable. Sure. You know, batteries and screens. Those are number one things that we, I think, users want to replace. Do I necessarily want to have the processor upgraded? Maybe it doesn't make the most sense right. in terms of how, how that, the logic and the, the RAM and memory is, so is all integrated. You're less concerned about repairability than modularity in those cases. And modularity, I think, is it, it, you always end up with like an idea and then ends up being this giant you know it's it's two sides uh, the modularity uh, repair is is one right uh one and, and then also upgradability right so repairability and upgradability like battery is the perfect intermediate right, right. battery doesn't it doesn't necessarily fail and you're not upgrading a battery but you're basically extending your phone's life because batteries have a limited life recharge span right, right. You're, you're, and that i think absolutely I, I love phones that have replaceable batteries lg g4 um camera module I don't need that to be replaceable. I know what I'm getting into when I buy the phone, and it's something that's going to be good enough for the lifespan of the phone. The right. screen, I think it's great if a screen can be replaceable yourself. In case it breaks. Because that's something that directly affects your everyday use of it. It's a huge part of it. And it's not, that's less about up, upgrading your screen and right. more about the thing that fails most on phones. Oh, man. If you could just have a screen on your shelf in case your phone broke, yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Right. So I think, you know, for companies out there, if you can make a phone where it's the battery, memory, and screen are replaceable, I think you, you've got, you're, you're in practical when sense. When you say memory, you mean yeah, memory? You me like extent, yeah, I mean, storage. Uh, sorry, storage. Okay. Sorry. So storage. I was like, because I was just like, oh, wow. Because I can think no, of phones I've had where like another gig would make it function so much better, but. Yeah, I think, I think processor and memory kind of tied together. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. This is like, I mean, this is this is the far end of the bell curve for smartphones in one sense, and the idea that yeah, they have, they've, you know, created this sort of Lego system to snap everything together, um, which is kind of an insult to Legos. But the, uh, you know, the fact that it's just you know a bunch of screws and things pull apart, and you're not sitting there with like giant heating devices to pry the screen off. It would be nice if. If certainly Apple and Samsung just made it easier to repair screens, but their theory is like we'd much rather sell you. That's right. Well, you know, if you buy the service contract and then it's, you know, $99 for this you know, extended service plan, $79 per replacement when you break your phone, and then we'll take the parts and recycle them into other phones to turn over to other people for $79. There's also a war for thinner and lighter. I'm fed well, up with I, thinner I, and lighter. I think, you know, that's, that's their line. Their line is that, oh, we can't make the screen replaceable because of the design of the phone. And I think what this phone and a lot of the, uh, I mean, it's the challenge of Android and other uh, phone makers to prove that wrong, to make a beautiful and and sturdy phone where you can actually pop the screen out, where you don't need customized screws. Come on, like Penelope was wasn't because it was necessary. It was a fu to repairability. Yeah, mm -hmm. isn't yeah. it? This this phone, it, they don't just make it easy to open or you know openable. Once you get inside it, there's mm -hmm. markers all over the place for how to put it back together. Yeah. yeah. And where the screws are, they're all circled in blue. There's little icons places. It has designed to, to open uh, molded in the side of the phone. It's neat. It's funny like in a lot of cases there's some aspects of this coming on with automotive design because I, I was looking at 
you know, one of the new models of a Subaru, and they've gotten to the point where, like, the oil filter is at the top of the engine and accessible. You know, you don't even, you can basically, like, hmm. you, you can change the oil filter without actually having to get under the car. That sounds great. Yeah, it's fantastic, you know, for, you know, and there's there's not a whole lot of, of maintenance other than that, like changing the spark plugs in 50 or 70,000 miles. And if you make those two things relatively accessible, then it gets that much easier to maintain. If that's things. possible, I mean, why aren't people doing that everywhere? That sounds fantastic. Because it requires you to actually think about things and re-engineer things yeah. in a way that makes them more accessible for repair. And that's usually the last thing that people are thinking about when they're engineering a new product. Um, now, talking about another uh, iFixit teardown, this one with a product that has a repairability score of 1 out of 10. <laughs> well, <laughs> who was that? Mom's repairability sick. score Sorry, of 1 out of 10. Um, Apple Pencil. Oh, really? Does yeah. It? Well, it, I think it's less interesting that it has a repair. I mean, I'm not surprised at all. The Apple Pencil's repairability score, of a uh, low repairability score. But it's all about this teardown or it was illuminating how the, that device works and what the sensors are, what the logic is on the Apple Pencil. And the two interesting things that came out of this teardown is that there are uh, sensors that detect the angle mm -hmm. the pencil is and also the orientation. The angle for calligraphy? So the, the, ang the angle for, for how you're writing, yes, and yeah. that determines the, uh, the pen stroke. And, and so the stylus is a really interesting device, and in in terms of how much technology the modern man and modern engineers, sorry, modern engineers have <laughs> have put into a device to emulate, yeah, a piece of lead, physics, physics, yeah, right. Uh, you have from the capacitive, which Apple Pencil is not, you know, the capacitive stylus, which just no pressure sensitivity, and uh, you can use software for how fast. You're moving the pen to illustrate, to, to abstract the uh, the width of your pen stroke. You have an active stylus, which uses you know Entrig uh, or mm -hmm. a Wacom technology uh, with uh, magnetic field uh, or or Bluetooth. Um, and then you have a lot of logic both on the reception side and on the transmission side to figure out all these things to kind of approximate, basically the physics of writing yeah. without actually putting well, down you any You could ink. say the same thing for a keyboard emulating a typewriter. Like, when that mm -hmm. was new, sure. people said, this is silly. Sure, sure. And, and so every step along the way is really interesting. Yes. And, of course, you know, while it costs $100 now and, it's, you know, it's way more expensive than a five-cent nickel pencil, um, all this will build to what, why, how we interface with computers in the future. And I still haven't used the Apple Pencil yet, but it's really interesting what Apple has put into it. I really want to see how it compares with the uh, the Surface, <laughs> the the Microsoft uh, stylus. Yeah, I just wish I could draw better to actually take advantage of either device in a meaningful fashion. Me too. Well, <laughs> your your signature is the one of the easiest ways to test because you know how it looks on a pen with pen yeah. pencil it, and you and with different surfaces. You try drawing a circle. You can't justify the cost of the product. Yeah. Just to draw your signature, though. Uh, absolutely not. Although a good point uh, that you make is that I I think that the stylus is really there's a huge potential for the stylus as a a, a, a digital accessory as a device that you carry with you mm -hmm. um, between devices. Um, touch no ID. Longer get yourself filthy by touching the. Well, screen at the Home Depot. No, no. Oh, you I, mean no, like a key, so it would actually have your identity on it. I think. The way to get people to, to collaborate that's interesting. It isn't about user logins. Hmm. It, 
I think it's about putting your digital signature and your, in your thumbprint on your input and Which how you back to the whole biometric thing and security. And sure, I mean you can lose your silo. You, you can lose it. Norm's pen. Right. We're going to town. Right. Yeah. And right now, the way you're uh, Apple, one of the ways that you're carrying your info is through your watch. It would right? have Touch ID on it, on the pen itself, so that Norm has to be holding it. So like, like a fire, like a firearm. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but, I mean, think about the uh, your Apple Watch, right? You, the Apple Watch, the way there's no biometric on it. All it has is um, your passcode, uh, the proximity to your phone, which is one of the way it unlocks, mm -hmm. and then it, the sensor it has is how it's connected to knowing that it's on your wrist, mm -hmm. like on or off, which mm -hmm. is a, still like, okay. Or it's been on a wrist. It's on a wrist. Since it was right. activated. Which is a, a good enough uh, kind of identifier. But the Apple Watch right now is a way that has your, you can use it to buy stuff. And I'm sure in the future, it's a way for you to kind of identify yourself, like unlock doors and, and mm -hmm. things like that. They want you to right. use apps that way. Yeah, you can do that at hotels at W, I think. Exactly. Um, the watch is one way, to, but there's, there's nothing else. It's, it's kind of like a passive identifier. It's a name tag for, for you, right? But you can't do things with it. Uh, the stylus, the pen, the pencil is something you, it's built to do things. Gives it's you agency in agency the world. Agency in, in the world, pointing, pointing device. It's a cursor. It's, it's a, you can use it to, to tap things. So I think both on Microsoft's side and on Apple's side, I think there's, they see huge future potential mm -hmm. for what the stylus can be and is. Um, Adobe, I think, had their stylus, which was tied to your Adobe account. Mm -hmm. So think of this way. If you're in the, their app um, and you held their stylus, which has your account, when you start, when you click a button and you cursor over the app, it loads in your your sketches and your your database and your, your, your settings. Mm -hmm. um, but that only works within their app. Yeah. If you own the ecosystem and you own the platform, you own the OS... I could totally see the Apple Pencil or the Microsoft Stylus being uh, that powerful. Is it the mouse replacement 15 I, years from now? I think, I think it could be. If Xerox Park could have made a touchscreen, would they have done a pencil instead of a mouse? It's one-to-one. One-to-one tracking and movement. Hmm. All to complement other models of, of interaction, of course. Touch and keyboard and cursor. Right. I don't think any of that stuff's going to go away. No, um. Are we running short on time? How are we doing? You guys doing okay? I yeah. Have, I have no heart out. Let's let's continue talking. Uh, did you guys see? Uh, obviously, the iPad Pro's out. Surface Book is out. Um, DisplayMate, who does uh, Doctor Ray Sanera, I believe, uh, he does this incredibly detailed analysis of displays. I'll say every with yeah. every device. Um, DisplayMate sells calibration software, but to to sell that software, he then runs new devices through a, a rigorous testing and his reports are kind of held really high to high right. like the, the tech community really like holds them up high and it's really interesting if you de dive deeper into his tests what he's mm -hmm. testing for you know i think a lot of a lot of people look at his results and say okay ipad pro great uh, but not as great as maybe uh, the Surface Pro 4 or something. <laughs> or, or our iPad Mini 4 was like the biggest surprise, great display, 99% sRGB and, and uniform backlight. Like, I think you really have to deep, dig into it to figure out what matters to you. Yeah. Just because he's saying that 
the iPad Pro has isn't as good as the Surface Book display. I guess I think they're both pretty good. Well, this is also, I mean, this is, this is, you know, as weird as like, what does anything actually sound like is a question and, and, and all audio being something it's, you know, reconstituted at so many levels mm -hmm. from the initial choice of microphones to the speakers and everything in between. Nobody knows what anything looks like on a television computer. That's right. Or, or a television screen or a computer or a projection screen unless it's been calibrated. And, and even within the context of calibration, you still have issues right. um, with color fidelity. And it's, it's. It's funny because when you're selling HD TVs, they artificially manipulate the color to make it pop, to make it entirely too bright, so it doesn't fade in the background with all the other ones on the racks. And it's so, it's so amazing because you start getting there's so many layers and subtleties within the recreation of color on a screen. It's kind of mind altering. It's it's yeah. it's just crazy when you start realizing like, well, you know, this one looks better than that one, and this is why. And it's like you know the color gamut. There's too much blue in the color gamut. It's like. Holy crap. Like, <laughs> well, and you put two great displays next to each other and really notice one's warmer and one's cooler. Sure. Yeah, I but, think, if, but if you don't put them beside don't, each other. They, they both look great. Yeah. And I think that uh, when you look at displays in general, because displays are obviously important. They're how mm -hmm. we interact with the digital content. You look for accuracy, which I, th I think what you're talking about, accuracy right. being really, really difficult to gauge and also evaluate and also to, to gauge whether it matters or not. And two... Uh, the more, what I think what's more important is just basic functionality, evenness right. of backlight, you know, how bright it actually gets. Right. These are things that you can absolutely, you, you, you'll actually affect your day-to-day -day experience if a screen does not get bright enough in the sunlight. Mm -hmm. If there's uneven backlight, and you can see backlight bleed uh, in, in a nighttime environment. Right? Right. These are things, actual, just basic. And I think we've gotten to a point where most of the high-end displays meet those requirements. You know, how, how good, the, how close to the screen uh, the, LC, the the panel is the glass, whether it's recessed or not. I think that affects this basic usability. But in terms of accuracy, the difference between 99% RGB and you know 99% Adobe RGB, <laughs> I think matters so little it's, to 90% of the users. It's right. diminishing returns again. It yeah, is. It's, we've gotten to the point now where technology is so good that the amazing technical right. achievements that people are making don't matter to 99% of the people. And it really is that 5% that the, these tests are speaking for. Not, and I don't want to discount them because I did. I asked on Twitter, who do people actually print out what they see on their iPad? When's the last time you edited an image, like a raw image, right. you know, with a Lightroom on your laptop or your tablet, not your laptop, and then sent it to a printer to print out and then cared about the accuracy of that? And I know, Jeremy, you said you have a printer that you can print out, but do you care about, you know, the 5% difference in color accuracy? No. I mean, I, I don't even know. For my purposes, it's for my kids anyway. They, they don't right. care. I think w there is a fair point that some people, you know, professionals, and for businesses, for some, someone pointed out, it does matter when you look at, for example, Home Depot's website, and you look at paint swatches, and you need the color on the screen yep. right. to be close to what it actually is in person. Well, then, then the, yes. There's a reason, like in iPads, there's no ability for you to be like, oh, I want to boost the contrast or I want to boost the, <laughs> you yeah. know, manipulate the colors. Um, you know, because it's like the number of times I've, I've walked into somebody's, you know, uh, you know, office and, and been like, that looks wrong. And then realize that they've they've tweaked the color to their satisfaction. Mm -hmm. um, to is, their satisfaction. Well, that's, well no. That's, we worked at magazines, yeah. and, and they would attach an octopus suction cup to the monitors, mm -hmm. yes. and it would run its own calibration functions to get the colors as accurate as possible. Yeah. Yes. I yeah. mean, it's you know not their satisfaction. It's 
to meet some sort of standard. For a production environment? Yeah. Absolutely. But what I'm saying is these kind of mobile or consumer class devices, yes. 95% of the people, bullshit number I'm throwing out there, the vast majority of people who are buying these devices, it doesn't matter. Now, for a device that's like the iPad Pro where it's positioned mm -hmm. to be for an artist where maybe they're going to use the Apple right. Pencil and design on that and then port over to their desktop, maybe that matters. Yes, a little more. Well, I mean, it's also when you when you start looking at like the difference between a hundred dollar tablet and a five hundred dollar tablet, the place it, it is almost immediately obvious is in looking at the screen, the quality of the screen, yeah. the brightness of the screen, the color of the screen, the you know the, the color saturation, the pixels per inch, and in that sense, uh, you know, I, I think certainly at Apple, the goal is for the iPads, all of the iPads, period, to be the best possible screen they can deliver and be consistent and be consistent because in their dream world. You're designing an iPad and viewing on an iPod or right. iPhone, and designing on a uh, you know a 4K, 5K iMac, and then viewing on the iPad. Mm -hmm. As long as it's consistent between those devices, people right. are happy because really, yeah. it's mat all it matters is how you're viewing it in the end. Whether it's paint on your walls, a printout on a magazine, a, right. you know the print quality on a magazine, or viewing a video in YouTube. I don't know that they're not catering to the professionals these days, though. But you know? I think it's it's more of a personal pride issue. I mean, it's like we are just going to end. We, we are going to charge a lot for these. And as part of that, we are going to deliver this superior experience because it all comes down to looking at the, you know, the colors coming off of the screen. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's interesting because like, you know, the iPad mini four, right, you know, is close to being a textbook perfect LCD display in all of the lab measurements and viewing tests. And it's like there's probably some really happy engineers inside of of <laughs> of Apple as to a result that. of that. Yeah. yeah. Well, they probably knew it. They're going to have someone else noticed. Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, that whole, I don't know. I mean, you know, they probably could charge less for these products at Apple if they did not spend as much money on the screens. But I don't think that's going to happen. That's always been yes. something that they have prided themselves on. The premium experience overall. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The, yeah, they basically came up with the Retina display or the 5K Max. Like, nobody needs a 5K Max yeah. unless you're a psychotic Photoshop, you know, junkie, uh, jockey, junkie, jockey, thin line. Um, but, you know, or, or if you're one of those people who's like an extreme coder and is operating with seven windows simultaneously. But, you know, Apple has never had any issues with absolutely pushing the high end on screen technology. Uh, and they're doing it in a way that it makes them compliant within an industry. And it is one of the few places where they really chase a spec. Mm -hmm. now, even if they're not advertising it, yeah. and they don't tell you, but they do, I mean, they tell you PPI in yeah. their keynotes. And, and then they'll, in their videos, show yeah. this, the sub-pixels of their 5K screen and talk about, talk about that, those specs. Yeah. Anyway. We are going to be running a little short on time, so I'm going to go through the next bit of tech news, and we'll talk a little bit about each, but uh, then race toward the VR minute. <laughs> um, Google, uh, Google Search has started, uh, they've been indexing the content within mobile apps for a long time on Android. And what's really cool is search on Android now. You can search, uh, and you'll get results from within apps. And when you click the result, if the app isn't actually on your in your phone, it will stream the virtual machine of that app, a VM ins version of the app, to your phone. What? And you can interface with, with it. Any app on the Google Play Store? Not every app. Well, every yeah. app that are, that complies to their SDK. I, I think so. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. So, 
a lot of content within apps, you know, media content, news, news apps, whatever, search stuff. But uh, the idea that they're confident enough on their, their virtual machines and their platform. It's a lot of virtual machines to spin up. They have a lot of processing power. Well, yeah. They also have a lot of users. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's that's interesting. I mean, it speaks to the value of what uh, what information is actually in apps only today and not indexed on web pages. I mean, it, it's a huge, it, it's a necessary move for Google. I mean, Google search hmm. is, they pride Google search because it indexes the world's information, but as it exists on HTML mm-hmm. and not necessarily, and, and of course, dynamically generated pages and stuff like that. But there's a lot of content now solely in an app. And so I need to be able to index that content too, and then also deliver that experience to users seamlessly within the search results. Wow, right. that's, that's heavy. Yeah, big deal, I think. Um, may not impact you today, but it's an it's a investment in their future. Uh, we've been using uh, Steam Link a little bit, um, Steam OS getting their daily updates. Uh, I think Ars Technica did a, um, a benchmark test and showed that on the native Steam OS systems, performance mm-hmm. is a little bit slower than you would get on a desktop, uh, on a x86 machine, or a Windows machine, I'm sorry. Yeah, not to be confused with Steam Link. No, no, I'm sorry. It's SteamOS, like the Alienware boxes, right. things running Linux. It's a driver issue. I'm not that surprised right now. No. Intel? <laughs> Intel uh, on the high-end consumer side, uh, which is their E-class processors. Right now, the highest end, I believe, is still the Haswell E uh, with eight cores. Uh, these are basically the server chips that they then eventually uh, remarket and redesigned for the, the high-end gaming market, or high-end prosumer market for gamers and for uh, people running uh, video encoding, for example. Um, Rumor is that Broadwell E could have 10 cores, adding two more cores. That means 20 with hyper-threading. That's a lot of cores. I could always yeah. use more. But running at a slower speed, so there's distinct yeah. trade-offs for this. Yeah. Um, Patrick, you do a lot of production encoding. Uh, would you do you find that apps benefit more cores or clock speed? Uh, it depends on the app. Depends on how effectively I mean, it's threaded. The general, like the, the state of apps today. Um, I, 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 at some point, once you get up to eight cores, it starts getting interesting because a lot of times when you get more, or when you get up to four cores, you know, eight threads, um, when you get larger than that, it starts getting really shifty. Hmm. which is a really half-assed answer, but it really depends on how hard you can actually push each individual thread and how good your cooling is. Right, there's, o- there's overhead when you're going to split mm-hmm. that up, and not many apps aren't even optimized to take yeah. more than two cores yeah. right now because that's where the majority of users are. Yeah, I mean, and, and then when you start looking at turbo mode, it really becomes, you know, cooling is actually starting to become something that's really useful if you can overclock things, which brings us down to f- speed. But if you have too many threads running and the processor gets too hot, then you lower the th- speed the threads can run at and you lose the advantage of the extra cores. Yep. So it's a little frustrating. Hmm. A Kickstarter I want to call out, um, Tiny Circuits, uh, which uh, I don't actually have it on the set right now. Uh, we did a video uh, about their miniature arcade cabinet um, a while ago. This is a stackable Arduino-compatible uh, microcontroller. Uh, and a component set. Component set. That's, yeah. It's stackable, which is what makes it really con- compact. Uh, they just launched a Kickstarter for that arcade cabinet, which they're selling an acrylic uh, model and a wood model you can snap together. It doesn't look exactly like what I showed uh, earlier this year, but they do have that 3D printed one. Uh, for I believe 150 bucks, if you want the acrylic one with all the electronics, it's 60 bucks. I think it's really neat, and the games are playable. Yeah, 
they're all original. They're they're not original games, but they are inspired by. They're inspired by actual games, and they're all coded for this platform. Yes. Uh, speaking about coding, Microsoft has launched a new initiative to teach kids to code with Minecraft. Code Code.org did a, a Star Wars theme one, and now yeah, I meant to uh, mention that last week. That's, yeah, it's very cool. I love Code.org. It's so great. explain what they do and and how you and your kids have used it. Uh, there's there's um. Basically, code blocks that you don't have to do any typing. So you drag out, you know, very simple commands like move right, move left, or you know, you can create basic um, if statements, and they're all just drag and drop blocks that you arrange to that would be, look like, you know, C code or JavaScript or something like that. But you, the the user doesn't have to do any typing, so it's the perfect introduction just to logic. And so Code.org, they just partnered with Lucasfilm and they or Disney, and they um they made a it's basically a Star Wars game that has to be a puzzle game that has to be solved by dragging out code blocks. And uh, then they introduce typing, so you no longer drag and drop, but you actually start typing like move right. And then you have to do like two parentheses and a semicolon. So it just introduces real basic coding concepts to beginners. And it's absolutely brilliant. I love seeing my kids use it. It's yes. like that equivalent. When I was growing up, the program we used was that logo, Drawing the Turtle. Do you remember that? Where you do the command line instructions, walk yeah. the turtle forward, turn left, and it was basically an Etch-A-Sketch with the keyboard. And I would, on paper, write mm -hmm. out, like, lines of, okay, I'm gonna do, I, wa I wanna, how many lines could I draw out um, of, of the code, quote-unquote, press enter, and have it draw me a house or yeah, something. Right. And this is, like, the modern equivalent of that with drag-and-drop better interface, and then incorporating now Star Wars and Minecraft uh, to really get the kids interested. What's the Minecraft version of this? So uh, there is a, a Minecraft one, uh, it's a tutorial, and um, it has basic movements like move forward, turn mm -hmm. left, right. and it's using the Minecraft visual interface, like Minecraft as as a way to the character and the world. That's what we've been using Scratch to teach Seamus. Yeah, that's and, the MIT. Uh, that's where it all started. Mm -hmm. I think that they basically invented this, as far as I know. It's fantastic. And then there's a cool video uh, Ford uh, put out that they're actually testing their autonomous cars. Uh, they built a, a little fake town that they used to test <laughs> it. Have you seen on, on City Streets any autonomous cars every time you see the, the LiDAR? Have you? I've, I've seen one. Autonomous cars? Well, not without people in the driver's seat. I haven't there's seen still people there. The driver's seat. I, I've, I have seen the autonomous cars twice. Yeah. Um, the, the early Apple version, or the, excuse me, the early Google, Google versions version. that were the modified uh, Volkswagens. I haven't seen any in the last probably two or three years. Here in San Francisco or down South Bay? I saw one in the East Bay on wow. 880, I want to say, and, and one probably on the peninsula. I didn't know that they could drive outside of their per, you know, periphery. I thought they were cleared for the whole state. Uh, that, it's interesting. Well, they could also just be just mapping. Yeah. Like, and they maybe aren't actually being driven autonomously, right. but they're testing right. the mapping in the city environment yeah. while a human driver yeah. is driving. I saw one uh, autonomous car got pulled over a week ago for driving too slow. It was like driving 20 in a 30. Wow. Yeah. Very cool. Living in the future. Anyway, it's time for... Yeah. No, they put this. it on the... Yeah. Yep. Hold on. Oh, VR Minute. <laughs> and here's the VR Minute. Okay, Norm, you go. <laughs> that's, that's an outro or intro I pulled from an old email. I can't find the VR Minute e intro. Um... I'll make you one. Please make me one, Jeremy. I think one of you guys out there sent sent one in, but the file did not have an uh, an audio extension, so I thought it was a virus. <laughs> so I didn't play that one. So that's a really old one that someone made, but we wanted to have an intro for the VR Minute because we have not had one in our past two NASA right. launches. You go, Norm. Um, so 
Altspace VR announced a partnership with Wizards of the Coast to uh, launch D&D. That's, that's Dungeons & Dragons. I, I, I remember. In virtual reality. I've never played Dungeons & Dragons. Me neither. Really? It's a time to do it in, in VR. It actually might make me interested in playing D&D. I've always been interested. I've just never had a crew that was nerdy enough. I've, I've, I've known plenty of crew. <laughs> I have housemates. I want that crew. I want it desperately. I want to try D&D, so maybe this is my opportunity. You need a good DM. I think that's yeah, what yeah, I've heard. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Altspace VR is a, a social VR company where uh, they create events and create virtual spaces and people can wear their headsets and do enter basically virtual chat rooms and watch inter- shared media. And uh, they created this, this tavern that you could create an avatar, go inside and play a D&D game. Is roll, it roll die and there's, that's a, there's it. a table. It's a tabletop simulator. It's a tabletop simulator. Okay. Yeah. And people can, you can, uh, boot up an instance of it and then generate your map mm-hmm. as you would for D&D, draw yeah. your board, and then start a server and people can jump in and play. I haven't done it yet. I don't know how interested actual D&D players are in it. I don't know how VR enthusiasts, and they think it's cool, but whether they're actually playing in it and using it and whether it's going to be more than just a novelty. Uh, but it's it's like Ready Player One. Here you know, your gamer. Carmack is supposed to be a legendary DM. Apparently, he led a campaign back in the Doom days for the old software, and it went on for like months and months and months. Wow. Yeah. I would like I would, <laughs> I would put money into a benefit. Like if he wanted to auction off a night of D and D with him as the DM inside this virtual space, I bet they could raise mad money. Yeah. yeah. I'm trying to decide if like I I'm brave enough to go into a virtual world with Carmack. Yeah. <laughs> Remember forever. I'll follow him into whatever metaverse <laughs> he wants to lead me into, even if it ends up in a D&D game. Uh, and then also uh, another piece of the VR Minute. Um, Will. Will wrote a piece for Wired. I saw that. Did you see this? An read op-ed. This? An op-ed for Wired, uh, Wired.com um, proclaiming uh, 360 video not being VR. Now, this is something that like Chet Falasek has talked about at length. That's a Valve, Steam VR. Uh, people promoting room scale VR. Uh, there are a lot of p- content makers out there who are making 360 video or 360. It's a rotational tracked, quote unquote, VR, VR experiences. We'll just call them virtual reality experiences, whether they're pictures or movies or interactive or games. Um, but it's different than positionally tracked experiences. And then also room scale, sitting and standing. Um, and Will's point is that, you know, don't c- call what Google's doing with 360 video VR. Call it 360 video because you'd be on a phone. Yeah, I think his motive is to um, tell people that if they have tried this, because New York Times just distributed a, a million cardboards inside right. the Sunday Times, right? That's right. So a lot of people have just tried VR for the first time on cardboard, which is like the bare minimum yep. as far as the VR experience goes. And it probably caused a little bit of nausea in a certain percentage of those people. And Will's priority is to tell those people, if you didn't enjoy that experience, don't give up hope. Yeah. Right? I am totally a fan of 360 video experiences viewed in VR. Th- uh, 360 pictures viewed in VR, I think they're great. Um, I want to encourage what companies like Jaunt are doing in creating, co- experimenting with content, whether it's a full 360 or 180 degrees. You know, basically, I think video doesn't need to be 360. I think video can you can take a rotationally tracked or VR headset and view basically an IMAX experience. I just want a bigger canvas 
right? I don't need to turn my head all the way around. And I want to see films film that way. And you got to get the stitching right. You got to get the workflow right. Com- right. Computational power is still not on the on the local side, still on the server side, and that stuff needs to be figured out. Yeah. Yes, it's hugely different than the maybe experience you get with a model 3D space, and it's. You know, it's like the difference between filming a movie and rendering a movie. Yes. You got to uh, admit the new Lytro um, camera looks pretty amazing. Yeah, the, if they can get it right. That's the light field capture device, mm-hmm. which which has depth information. It's not like a camera in the traditional sense. It will give you parallax in both horizontal and vertical. That's right. So that you can turn, you can move side to side, but you can also do some positional movement. So you yes. can move in that space. And I think that's for comfort. It's not, to, I, I think, I agree that you don't want to sell those, that captured experience as a like a world you can move in right because there are limits because there are absolute limits i think any type of parallax you integrate and any type of like depth information yes uh, is really for comfort of viewing a piece of content that you're supposed to enjoy in stationary position or in in a rotational position right but if you have that information you can now tilt your head side to side and you can move around within a certain range so i would still call that vr Mm -hmm. it's still putting on if you're putting on a headset to view it I mean, to some extent, I don't think you could call uh, even the room scale stuff VR. I mean, it's it's all a sliding scale. You know, 20 years from now, when VR has, when we figure out locomotion and, and you have big warehouses with positionally tracked, and you can walk in yeah. in ju- big rooms. Full field of view. Full field of view. Yeah. You know, you wouldn't call Steam VR and Oculus, you wouldn't call that VR either. You say, oh, those early, those, days. Those early days of room scale. You know, we got to get there. We all, it's all, it's not one or the other yeah it's it's a, it's a big progression uh, but the people who did put on the and i think some people did who put on the new york times the the class stuff and it i would say th- for the people i've showed cardboard to more often than not they are impressed yeah yeah no i think it serves a purpose i i think it would be you know they're i think they have a classroom initiative so that schools can buy them mm-hmm. in bulk and they why not i mean if you can put cardboard into the hands of 30 kids in a public school and get them just to look around and yep. see a different space for the first time I've you that's fantastic and it's about creatable creating scalable experiences i think the content creators should create something maybe aim for the high end and create something that's going to be room scale or beyond but then allow the content to pare down so you can view it in in just a rotational stationary experience and have still a good experience that is better than looking at a uh, a rectangle on your on your desk. Mm-hmm. We're all going to get there. Leaves an impression. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that does it for the VR Minute. Let's wrap up with some stuff we're testing. What, are you guys been, what have you guys been testing this week? Man, uh, Intel's, or Intel's, Dell's 7559, that gaming laptop, um, which is a pretty impressive for $799. And the fact that you can actually get inside of it and, and get to most of the upgradable innards with a single screwdriver and a single screw is pretty awesome. Um, it's also funny because I'm so used to like, oh my goodness, it's it's I want newer and lighter and tinier and, and, and the Service Pro 4 is two and a half pounds. Well, this is like a five pound laptop with a big old power brick. <laughs> but I also look at it like, oh, if it would just do 32 gigabytes, this would be such an amazing uh, premiere editing computer and it's like well you know what even with 16 gigabytes it would still make a pretty badass uh premiere uh uh, video editing uh computer so jeremy um i recently upgraded my nas box i have an old qnap like five-year-old intel atom based one that i upgraded to a new one and it it runs virtual machines 
I mean, it's amazing what the NAS boxes do now. You you can spin up a bunch of virtual machines that has you know can support like forty security cameras, uh, which is the reason I, I upgraded it. But it's uh so it's it's very cool. It's the new QNAP uh, TS four thirty nine, I think. Um, good price, and you can you know rip out your old drives and drop them in the new one, and it just works. That was that was exciting. That's huge because I did not want to buy four new drives and do a, go through a copy process. Oh, so copying from uh, spinning drives to spinning drives. Yeah, no good. And no I've good. been playing Star Wars Battlefront. Um, how do you like it? I mean, I don't know how people manage to play it because I just want to look at that game. Yeah. Right. I just want to walk through it and just admire it. It is the best looking game I've ever seen. And really? prior to yeah, absolutely. Prior to this, it was GTA Five, but this takes the cake. I mean, it's just unbelievable. <laughs> you just want to walk up to everything, just like the X wings that have crashed into the ground, the textures on the you know the Hoth like ice planet. Well, and, they, and, and the Endor planet when you walk through the jungle, it's just yeah. so lush. It's a, it's really really impressive, but I'm I'm horrible at the game. I used to be really good at shooters, but <laughs> are you playing with a gamepad? Is that the problem? No, I switched to mouse because I get a little bit of an advantage. But hey, are you playing on PC? Eh? Yeah, let's mm-hmm. play together because sure. I have it. Uh, it has the 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 friend system. Uh, yeah, it's made by Dice. It's not like a big party system. Uh, it's really just like you and one per- other person can spawn next to each other. Great. So let's play that. I still am exploring the levels. I love the fresh feeling of loading up a new sh- like really cool world, you know, a shooter where I like the world yeah. and, and discovering the levels because not knowing where the limitations are and the game doing a good job hiding the seams mm-hmm. um, is, is fun. Yeah. I, the whole, I, I don't know. I come from Quake, you know, where everyone spawns with the exact same weapons <laughs> yeah. and everyone's happy. And I, and that's my heritage. And I like that. I guess this is supposed to be a simplified version of Battlefield, but I never really got into those games too much. I'm playing this because it's Star Wars, but it seems odd to me that the more you play, the better weapons you get. So that if you're new to the game, you're at a disadvantage. I think better is is relative. Ah. Uh, it's I Different. think even with the this the blaster you get at the start, it, I mean it's a laser hose. The game is really simple in terms of shooting mechanics. You're just holding down the laser until it overheats. Uh, the weapons you're unlocking, <coughs> excuse me, really just trade off accuracy, you know, damage per second and and reload times. And okay. So it's it's really for people who want to snipe, for example, or like shooting from afar versus close quarters. Mm-hmm. And then the unlocks really are what what hamper you in terms of unlocking the You don't the even thermal, have grenades de- at first. Yeah, thermal right. detonators right. and stuff yeah. like that. And you have the things you got to unlock. But you can still get kills with, you know, you got it by just playing. And I, I'm having fun. The thing I, I find most frustrating in that game so far is flying the ships. Oh, I switched to gamepad for that. Uh, oh, mouse and keyboard so tough for flying the ships. I know they do a really good job trading off between speed and accuracy. The faster you fly, the more the looser your yeah. controls are and the less accurate you can be. Um, but it's, maybe it's a good idea. I'll plug in a, a gamepad. Uh, also, my um, kids and I are hooked on Towerfall Ascension. Have you played that at no, all? No, I haven't. It's one of these four-player, you know, um, last man standing games where you just get pixelated characters on the screen and everybody fights. But it's a arrow. It's a archery style game oh, so cool. you can shoot arrows it's a bit of a physics engine to it you can stomp on people's heads so there's power-ups uh it's pixel it's just gorgeous pixel art i mean it's very highly rated game on steam um i recommend that check it out nice nice and then uh on tested right now we're actually putting out videos for the show tested the show 2015 which jeremy you attended and participated in uh the first two videos are out today they'll be rolling out throughout the end of this week and 
early next week. So please check those out. If you're a tested premium member, uh, we're also running a week of build where Frank and I repaint some Star Wars toys. And tomorrow, this Friday, uh, we'll have the full run of Test of the Show for premium members. So you can watch that full hour, 45 minute show without waiting next week. So thank you guys for supporting us. And thank both of you for joining me on this podcast today. Patrick Norton, we can find you at Tech Thing. Tech Thing. Weekly and show. My apologies for the three-year-old destruction. Uh, it's fun. <laughs> Ambience. And Jeremy, where can people find you and your other projects? Uh, well, I'm at Jerware on Twitter. And uh, any updates about my projects, you can find there. All right. And I'm Norm from Tested. You can find me at Enchan or every day on Tested.com. Until next week, we'll see you next time. And this outro, uh, oof, I forgot the name of the guy. So here's an outro. Hi there, I didn't see you. Tested. There's a fine line between right. topless under, and side boob. Under. Can't forget about the under, Jeremy. The things you learn on this show. <laughs> See you guys.